Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's episode is uh, unusually spontaneous and uh, going from conception to release in uh, just a few days. Uh, last week, after we put out Howie and my discussion of NCOV, uh, I was thinking it would be great to have a follow-up about what governments should be doing uh, right now to uh, prevent and manage pandemics uh, so that we can get some good ideas circulating while the policy reform iron is still very hot indeed. And as it happens on the weekend, I was hanging out with my friend Cassidy, and it turned out that her and her biosecurity research group at Oxford had been busy working on literally exactly that question last week. Uh, so I figured if she was going to be explaining all of this to me, why not pull out the recording gear uh, and share her views with everyone else at the same time? After a brief update on where we're at with NCOV, we then work our way through uh, 12 specific policy ideas, uh, and I try to push Cassidy on each of their pros, cons, and various uncertainties. While uh, these proposals are obviously especially pertinent today, uh, they were probably also good ideas a few years ago, and I expect that they'll look equally sensible in a few years' time as well. Uh, all large-scale pandemics have to start with just a few hundred cases, and we might be able to uh, really greatly limit the damage they do uh, if we can get better at early outbreak detection and containment. Uh, but to get there, uh, we're going to need both some new science and technology uh, and new ways of organizing people to respond uh, intelligently uh, and, and really quickly. I didn't emphasize this in the interview uh, nearly as much as I should have, uh, but each one of these approaches that we talk about is not only a policy option available to governments, uh, but also a career option uh, open to some of you listeners. Uh, among others, we discuss several biomedical research projects for scientists, uh, various kinds of policy analysis that economists and others could do, regulatory reforms uh, that security experts could look into, uh, and scenario planning work that really has to be done by people working in medicine. One thing I love about pandemic preparedness as a uh, pressing global problem is that there are just so many sensible ways to, uh, to get about tackling it um, all across government, uh, academia, medicine, business, uh, the military, uh, security studies. Uh, the service area of the problem is just uh, really big. So I'm sure that there's at least uh, one person in the audience who can pick up and run with uh, each of these ideas in their own life and hopefully help move the needle on humanity's safety from contagious diseases. I apologize ahead of time if there's any uh, audio or editing issues with this one. Uh, we've put this episode together on a very accelerated uh, timeline so we can get these proposals out there before NCOV becomes uh, widespread in the US uh, or in Europe. Uh, as always, though, if you notice something that we should address or have any other feedback for us, uh, drop Kieran and me an email at podcast at 80,000 hours.org. Oh, and uh, one thing we forgot to mention in the interview uh, is that Cassidy was just accepted into the uh, Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity Fellowship, uh, which is being run by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Uh, we talked about that back in episode 27 with the center's director, Dr. Tom Inglesby. Uh, and if you're interested in working on biosecurity, uh, that program is uh, one of the best ways we know of to advance your career. And so you should definitely uh, think about applying. Uh, you can hear the pitch for why it sounds so particularly valuable uh, in that episode with Tom, and we'll stick up links to the program's website uh, in the blog post associated with the episode. Uh, applications for the next round will open uh, this coming November. All right, without further ado, here's Dr. Cassidy Nelson. Today, I'm joined by Cassidy Nelson, a research scholar at Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute, uh, where her research centers on global catastrophic biological risks and the threats posed by advanced biotechnology. Uh, Cassidy is also a PhD student at Oxford, focusing on mathematical modeling of pandemic scenarios. 
Before moving to the UK, uh, Cassidy studied and practiced medicine in Australia with a focus on hospital and laboratory-based medicine, human biosecurity, and communicable disease public health. And she also happens to be the person that Howie and I turned to to listen to our conversation about uh, NCOV uh, before it went out last week to make sure we weren't saying anything too egregiously wrong. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Cassidy. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for having me. So we've ended up doing this episode, and I hope we'll be able to get it out uh, really fast uh, because we were chatting the other day, and uh, you mentioned that you were meeting uh, some people in the UK government to uh, give them advice on how to better control and uh, manage pandemics, I guess, with a particular focus on NCOV, which uh, everyone is talking about just now. And I was like, that is perfect because uh, well, I was just thinking that it would be great to do an episode to draw some attention to hopefully uh, not stupid policy ideas that uh, people might be willing to implement right now while uh, so many people are thinking about what government can do to, uh, to stop NCOV from getting into their countries. Yeah, no, there's lots of interest in this space at the moment, and there's lots of ideas flying around. So ha happy to be here ta talking about a few. Before we get to that, though, uh, how did you end up working on global catastrophic biological risks? Uh, my colleagues have told me that yeah, 80,000 hours had something to do with it, but uh, I don't know the details. Yeah, no. So so uh, I originally came across 80,000 hours and uh, in effect, altruism as a movement as well. Uh, back in Australia in 2016, I was, um, I was four years out of medical school and I was really thinking about which specialty I was going to go into. I uh, was a bit uncertain about, about uh, which type of career path would be, would be best and have good impact. And I was actually Googling how to have more impact with my career that I came across 80K. And uh, I had uh, years before discovered uh, Peter Singer uh, in some philosophy classes in my in my undergraduate actually, and um, had gotten quite involved in thinking about extreme poverty, thinking about animal rights, uh, but had somehow missed the EA bandwagon. <laughs> um, and so uh, in 2016, coming across the ADK website, a lot of the writing on there really resonated with me, really uh, made me realize how much impact I'd have working in clinical medicine, seeing uh, one patient at a time. And uh, that uh, initially led me to uh, public health. And then and then uh, through uh, some ADK career coaching, uh, led me to think about uh, biosecurity and 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 uh, more more consideration of the long-term future which I'm now uh, very much focused on in my in my work uh, I guess someone reading Peter Singer and then googling how to have more impact with their career <laughs> it's kind of the archetypal perfect target audience for, for 80,000 hours it's kind of hard to believe that anyone exists uh, in reality doing that rather than just someone on paper in part of our strategy document well I'm really glad that the resources were available to me at the time otherwise I, I might have still been um, a bit lost uh, looking for myself in a medical career so yeah I guess you you would have seen the articles on like how many lives does a doctor save that's right that's one of them that I came across and then maybe our biosecurity uh, problem profile or something like that that's right and uh, and then thinking through about how many uh, people could potentially die in a pandemic, as well as uh, really, really appreciating that even if you have uh, low probability events, the, the scale of the impact that they'd have both on uh, near-term considerations as well as the long-term future uh, really resonated with me and has uh, really shaped my decisions that have led me to, to be living in the UK today and working in this today. Fortunately, we've got a, we've got a big update to the biosecurity and pandemic uh, preparedness problem profile. Uh, coming out in the next few weeks. Well, yeah, I guess yeah. possibly, you never want to say next few weeks, but at least within the next few months. Yeah, no, uh, my, my, colleague, my colleague Greg Lewis has been working hard on that. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing that out there and seeing how um, um, uh, more people getting interested and involved. Yeah, I have, have something even better for the next doctor who's Googling how to have more impact with my career. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So 
Uh, I guess I don't want to spend too much time focusing on uh, NCOV specifically, because uh, hopefully we can think about uh, timeless policy ideas for, for pandemic preparedness. But before that, is there anything you want to say about like where, where we stand with NCOV today as of, I guess, uh, Tuesday, 11th of, of February? Uh, is there anything that's uh, useful to put, it, put things in context? Yeah, yeah. So I thought uh, the, the podcast that you and Howie did uh, a week or so ago now uh, was quite good and that you were able to cover a lot of ground and, and, and talk through a lot of the different issues. You also did a really good job of um Conveying uncertainty, uh, which I really respect. I think a few, a few people in this space, uh, including some people in the U.S., uh, uh, have not been so good about conveying uncertainty. So, so what I could say from today is, is I mean, what what we know is that uh, we do have more than forty three thousand confirmed cases globally. Uh, more than 99% of those being in China. Uh, we have more than a thousand deaths now. Uh, it looks like this outbreak is continuing to grow, although the latest uh, case numbers from the last few days uh, seems to have, uh, the, the growth rate itself seems to be slowing down. Whether that is a true representation of the situation is a bit hard to tell when you have data collection problems where you only really, if you, if you think about if you think about the cases as a as a pyramid, and you're only collecting the very tip of that pyramid, and you don't really know the size of that pyramid going going forward, uh, it can be very misleading depending on depending on how you're ascertaining cases. Uh, so I, I think uh, looking at the situation now, it's it's not. I'll just say outright, I don't I don't think it's a uh, GCBR or global catastrophic biological risk. However, I do think it is a uh, quite a concerning outbreak in terms of thinking through. Are we prepared for for an outbreak of this scale? An outbreak that uh, is already overwhelming resources and 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 response efforts in places like China, and uh, are there things that we could be doing drastically differently that that might be able to prepare us for for the next one, which might be might be considerably worse? Yeah, last week. Howie and I, I think, gave a probability of something like 20% of uh, whether we'd be able to contain it. Uh, and like ultimately, you know, in the next six or 12 months, uh, the, the pandemic would die out. Uh, I, yeah, what, what do the odds look like now? <laughs> Uh, the latest, the latest that I've been reading, and um, I would encourage uh, some people to, if if they're interested in this outbreak specifically, uh, the the best resources I've been coming across are uh, kind of from a mix of places, but especially here in the UK, uh, the Imperial um, College of London is releasing some great reports that are able to to go through kind of the missing data in great detail. And uh, what they're reckoning is is that we're detecting less than ten percent of actual cases at the moment, and uh, they've made predictions again with high uncertainty. But that that predictions that the the outbreak should peak in Wuhan in about a month's time in China within two to three months, and then in the rest of the world there might be peaks depending on uh, uh, import rates uh, within the several months after that. All of that. Unfortunately, uh, is is not something that that can be forecasted very well when we still don't have uh, just even base understanding of some elements of this disease. I think the other place that people could be looking to as well is the the John Hopkins Center for Health Security have been doing a really good job of relaying information both uh, from the U.S. perspective as well as from a global perspective. And so, so yeah, I'd, I'd encourage people to 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 continue reading about this as as time goes on because it's it's gonna it's gonna evolve as as we develop more uh, more understanding and get more information yeah i guess that's not kind of a containment scenario though right it's it's kind of it's more like it's it's burned out because so many people have got it already my, my personal view based on based on this data is is that it's not likely that we're going to be able to uh contain it in the same way that we contain sars for example uh where we are able to stop transmission completely at, at just over eight thousand cases uh where we've already obviously massively exceed, exceeded that in terms of the just confirmed case numbers what I what I think is possible is that we uh, we either 
get to a, get to a stage where uh, the the outbreak peaks and then dies off completely in the places where it already is established. And there haven't been uh, good examples yet of outside of China a very much sustained transmission. Uh, whether or not that's going on and we're, uh, it's going undetected uh, is is an open question, um, and I have suspicions that that might be the case. Uh, and I'll get to that in a moment with regards to how we're actually detecting cases. But if it does just peak in China and then go off, uh, it, it might uh, completely disappear, and so we don't have we don't have cases anymore in a year or so time. The other outcome that we need to consider and that some, some have already raised in the biosecurity community is that this might become endemic, uh, just like we have other coronaviruses, including seasonal coronavirus, that we see come come up every, every winter time, and, and you actually have uh, peaks and waves of an outbreak. It's it's quite possible that this is a uh, emergent coronavirus species that ends up going down the endemic route. Yeah, so kind of becomes like the flu, but it's just a different kind of flu. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, or, or or other respiratory viruses. Yes. Yeah. Do you have a sense of how how alarmed uh, authorities in the U.S. and, and U.K. are? There's, I mean, there's signs that they're quite alarmed. Uh, in 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 the U.S., they've they've done things as drastic as announcing travel bans, uh, which is quite an extreme measure. Uh, in the U.K., there, there's obviously a lot of concern, and just in the last day, there's been evidence of a super spreader event, which is a anomaly that you do see in in outbreaks at times, where you have a, a single person who who generates a, a much larger number of cases than the average. So, so yeah. this particular person, uh, on a return from Singapore and stopping stopping by in France for a, for a vacation, um, ended up uh, infecting at least 11 people. Have been confirmed from a from a single case. And uh, these these types of events uh, they lead to to a nonlinear transmission route mm. uh, that, or nonlinear transmission uh, curve, mm. and so uh, things like this do cause a lot of concerns in places like the UK of going that you might have this you might have this uh, sudden inject of a lot of cases, uh, which uh, which which could lead to the the worrying scenario of you do get sustained mm. outbreak in a place like the UK or or the US. That person wasn't especially sick themselves, right? They were just spreading it everywhere despite having modest symptoms. That's correct. At least according to the reports, that person had very modest symptoms and was only isolated, not because they themselves were were that unwell, but because uh, they wanted to stop them transmitting. Uh, and that in in itself is also a worry. Well, while that's uh, well, it's good for the individual to only have mild symptoms from a case like this. Uh, people who are infected and only develop mild symptoms also don't go stay at home and stay in bed, or or go to hospital and stay in a hospital bed. Uh, they're ambulatory and they walk around yeah. and they they might uh, even though they have milder symptoms, so they might be uh, what we call like excreting less virus than someone who's extremely symptomatic. Mm. Uh, they're also walking around potentially uh, getting into contact with more people and therefore actually might be more contagious than the extremely unwell person. Hmm. That can sustain an outbreak and, and can make it very difficult to contain. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to uh, policy. I guess yeah, we don't want to think only about uh, options that are available for NCOV because I suppose in some ways, well, for, for some options, it's already too late. Uh, we would would need to plan uh, years ahead potentially to, to, to do some things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess there is this interesting phenomenon where uh, you know every time there's a pandemic, people are very interested to figure out what, what can we do right now? And I suppose they end up kind of fighting the, the last fire. Yeah, do you think that there's, there's a problem with, you know, each time we, we try to figure out what can we do about this uh, pandemic right now and then don't think about, well, what can we do to plan ahead to uh, put in place processes that will be able to, to, to stop the next thing? Uh, very much so. I, I, I get very worried that, that as a species in general, that we're quite reactive and we're not very good at being proactive. And uh, events like this really show the need to be 
proactive, uh, that, that being able to scramble in the moment to come up with countermeasures, to even be able to come up with a diagnostic test, uh, means that you're always several steps behind it, where, where the outbreak is actually at, at any given moment. So so in, in many ways, uh, we, we need to be thinking of policy uh, for the next outbreak to be able to plan now for that. However, at the same time, I do think there are things that we can do for outbreaks uh, in the moment, uh, as it were. Um, there, there can be ways that we can think through um, with current moments like this, what we could be, what we could be doing differently. I think, in general, with regards to to funding and interest as well, that that we do really have a focus usually uh, on things that are very uh, temporally relevant. And we've seen this before in uh, 2009 in swine flu, where there was massive amounts of funding going into certain public health measures. Uh, the, the world uh, uh, in, in many places never had a pandemic plan in, 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 their national, in their national public health system before. Many places like Australia developed a pandemic plan specifically because of 2009 swine flu. Mm. However, uh, the follow-up to that years later isn't always there. So people don't necessarily go in and see once you've injected money and resources into this, what the actual ongoing steps are. Is there ongoing interest or does does interest dry up and you don't actually get the changes that you need, kind of having a self-sustaining mechanism? Uh, the other the other good example of this is in uh, 2001 uh, in anthrax in, in the United States, that you had a sudden investment in deliberate biological events, which is something I, I personally very much care about with, with my work at FHI. And you saw in 2001 a high interest in being able to protect the nation against deliberate biological threats. And you had things like the BioWatch program come out, which uh, took billions of dollars of investment into doing environmental biosurveillance, which was quite revolutionary at the time, but turned out to not be um, as effective as people would have hoped. And then you had a, a very much a trailing off of that interest. And that, that, that's exactly what we don't need in these situations. When you have events that only occur occasionally and you have interest that waxes and wanes, you, you will never, ever be prepared properly. And so uh, sustained sustain funding, sustained interest is what we really should learn from something like this. Well, I guess you, you need policies that are useful in a wide range of scenarios rather than just focusing on some on something that would narrowly work in a very specific case that you've already seen. I guess I think mm-hmm. if you like putting in place a policy that only works if they decide to use anthrax, isn't that helpful? Because then, well, one, they can just like adapt to that and then use a different different thing. But then there's like there's all, all kinds of different diseases that, that terrorists might use. And yeah, a policy that's so brittle that it, that it only helps in this in this one case doesn't seem so good. And, and that brings me to one of the one of the policy <clears throat> recommendations that I was going to yeah. talk through was this idea that we, uh, as much as it's nice to have a na- a national pandemic plan, like many countries do, like the UK does, like the US does, like Australia does. Uh, we need a national pandemic plan. The pandemic influenza plan on its own is just is uh, just always going to be disease specific. It's not going to account for things, for example, like this novel coronavirus, where we don't have vaccines a- a- against it, like we do uh, for flu. At least, at least you have a baseline vaccine that you could, you could potentially adapt. Uh, we also need to for events where it's not. Uh, as common, you need to be able to test systems. If it's not going to happen that often, you need to be able to do things like pandemic tabletop exercises where you actually trial the system that isn't activated that often because you're not seeing events that often uh, to be able to actually see where the failures uh, in the system are actually going to be so you can address them before the, the real event itself. In your normal research, I guess your your focus was we've been using this term uh, global catastrophic biological risk, which is this jargon for I guess like the worst case scenarios basically. So uh, a disease that a new disease that doesn't kill two percent of people but kills like fifty percent plus. So it's like a is a, is a massive threat to to humanity. Or I suppose uh, cases where uh, it's been done deliberately as say a weapon by a state or something like that, uh, where where it's like easier to get these kind of worst case scenarios. 
How much do you think that the policies that would deal with NCOV and other similar pandemics like that uh, kind of overlap with the ones that would help with uh, these, these GCVRs? It depends. In in some ways, uh, they are the same response system that you would be wanting to, to deploy in a GCBR event versus a, a normal, quote unquote, pandemic event. Uh, in other ways, the kind of responses that you'd need for something truly globally catastrophic uh, require not just a scale up of what the normal system is, but a completely different strategy. So so, so uh, depending on the aspect of the response, but depending on the aspect of how you'd want to prevent such things, uh, they do they do differ quite a bit. I do think, though, there's wins to think through uh, ways in which uh, the combinations go hand in hand, because I think, uh, especially with regards to policy changes in government, uh, it would be hard to get through legislation and, and through policy changes in general. General that only uh, tackle uh, globally catastrophic events and have no relevance to to natural pandemics. Yeah, I suppose in as much as you're worried about uh, active use, then you can focus on well, how do we like regulate the technologies and the labs, and like what agreements can we have between states to discourage them from producing biological weapons? There's like a whole category there that doesn't really carry over to, to natural pandemics. But then there's also in a in a case where has a 50% mortality rate and is spreading a lot. You can imagine just like the normal healthcare system completely breaking down and you potentially need to rethink, well, how do we treat this completely? Because uh, you can't just use the normal processes because they're not going to be not going to be functioning. No, that, 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 that's exactly right. It's 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 really beyond just a scale up of, of what your health system is. Most, most health systems around the world are, are functioning at 95% plus capacity on a daily basis. You can't inundate a healthcare system with um, cases of a of a new pandemic pathogen and and expect it it continue to 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 work. So so the idea that that you can just uh, you can you can just isolate cases in in existing isolation uh, beds in hospitals and and uh, hope that that you just don't exhaust that system just really doesn't work for for global catastrophic risks. So thinking through in, instead of instead of just exhaustion of systems as they were, alternative routes for which you could get patient care, alternative routes for which you could isolate symptomatic patients so that they're not transmitting the disease uh, is is really important to think through. And unfortunately, there have uh, only been limited examples of of countries really being willing to think through things of this level. Uh, there, you know, there's there's uh, some some uh, countries that have have made some public statements about about plans about things like uh, home isolation or home care, uh, but in in very limited and, and specific circumstances, not thinking through different ways that you'd really get on board with tackling um, a very large scale, uh, highly lethal uh, pandemic pathogen. And uh, to your point with regards to to prevention of, of deliberate events too, you're, you're right. There's 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 a very different strategy that you go through thinking about how you prevent a uh, malicious actor from from misusing biology to cause harm than you would, for example, thinking through uh, the uh, origins of a natural flu pandemic or or other viral pandemic. And those strategies uh, differ differ drastically when you're dealing with it. Uh, though the responses very quickly start over because both of them are, are, are punctuated by the fact that you have a sustained disease propagation through your population. Have we learned anything from what the, the Chinese are doing or, or what they're struggling to do? And so, I mean, I guess I think like a week ago, you were looking at the kind of quarantine numbers that they were giving out and just seeing the explosion, the number of people they were supposedly containing because they'd had contact with someone who had the disease. Mm-hmm. And I suppose also the, the hospitals are just getting flooded with patients, or at least at some point they were. Is there anything we can learn from that about you know how do you deal with this with a sudden explosion the number of cases you have to deal with? And- yeah, so I've been amazed at uh, the the response that's happened out of the Chinese government, uh, both with regards, like you were saying, to to quarantine, where they were contact tracing on average eleven to twelve 
persons for each confirmed case, uh, which, as you can imagine, uh, completely exploded very quickly. And they've they've contact traced more than 400,000 people and put them in medical observation, um, home quarantine-like setups. We're not entirely sure of all the details of exactly what that home quarantine entails, uh, but just that sheer number that they're at least doing like a daily phone call into is just uh, uh, massive on a system and, and is just not sustainable in the, in the long term. Uh, what we've also seen, like you were saying, is the idea in China of being able to actually uh, create an entire hospital in under 10, 10 days, more than a thousand beds and be, being able to have it up and, and functioning. I don't think you could do that in most Western countries. I, it would be very difficult to, to, to get to those levels, as well as quarantining whole cities. We've never seen a quarantine of this yeah. scale before or stopping human movement of this scale before. All of those, I think, uh, in, in, in some ways are, are, are encouraging in, in that, uh, China's obviously taking this really seriously and is, has learned some lessons from SARS. Uh, in, you know, it's a little bit scary in terms of from a personal citizen point of view, I'd imagine for many people in China. However, I, I find it even more disturbing though, is that, is that despite all these measures, the case numbers, uh, were, were not, we're not really coming down for for quite a few days now that now that they might be coming down at least according to the confirmed case counts it isn't terribly reassuring to me given given the ample growing evidence that there's a lot of undetected cases that are already present in Wuhan and 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 outside of Wuhan as well what this means to me is is that we're it, it showcases that even in a state like China that where where you could enact these measures that maybe it's just 19th century Public health just doesn't work. The idea of isolating symptomatic cases and quarantining uh, non-symptomatic contacts is is just not feasible as a, as a true way to reduce transmission in your population, and and that maybe we just need a drastically different approach to how we how we do public health, how we do outbreak containment, and and that we probably need to start considering that soon, uh, especially for a, uh, a worse pandemic that I worry that we might face this century. Yeah, I guess uh, if if the shutting down of travel inside China, I guess especially uh, around Wuhan, is the first time that that's been attempted on that scale. I suppose there'll be tons of epidemiological papers getting published in that, trying to trying to learn from this uh, n equals one yeah. <laughs> of whether it's worked or not. We might not be able to figure it out. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be hundreds of papers that come out of this <laughs> outbreak. Yeah. I guess speaking of uh, travel restrictions, that's uh, one thing that I guess some governments have done. So the U.S. has done that, uh, or they've like they've cut off flights from China to the U.S. Is that right? They've they've cut off flights from certain areas of China and into the U.S. They are allowing U.S. citizens back okay. into the U.S. And the U.K. Uh, hasn't done that. That's um, correct. Although British Airways has closed off some flights to China, or, or yeah. almost all of them now, I think. Yeah, well, I suppose perhaps the number of people going on uh, tourist trips to China <laughs> might have declined. <laughs> that's yeah. less interesting commercial <laughs> flights there. Um, so that's, that's been super controversial. Uh, there's like a common sense way in which you'd be like, well, this is the place where tons of people have this disease. Why don't we stop them from coming at least for a while? And then that will slow down the spread or perhaps we'll be able to contain it. It's kind of, it's easy to, just, easy to see the immediate appeal of that. Um, what's, what's, what's kind of the, the case against what, why is it? Yeah. Why is it so controversial, whether it, whether it helps or not? Yeah, no. So, so travel bans, like you were saying, it seems, seems like a common sense, uh, response in a lot of countries, therefore have, uh, really in, in a knee jerk type reaction way, um, um, started instilling this. Uh, if you look at the evidence base though behind travel bans, uh, it seems that, uh, in most cases, especially with a rapid moving respiratory virus, that it really just doesn't work. And a, a lot of this, a lot of this evidence came out of 2009 swine flu. Um, there's some good Australian modeling papers on this as well. Um, but if you look at the synthesis of all 
this literature, what it seems to show is is that uh, travel bans for these types of outbreaks, um, if you can get uh, above 90% of the travel stopped from the, the place of origin, it seems that you could delay the peak of the outbreak by about three weeks. Uh, plus or minus. And so uh, th- that, that sounds great on, on paper, but uh, uh, three weeks actually, if, if a vaccine takes more than a year to um, be, be developed, let alone uh, manufactured on scale, and you don't really have any other public health response besides the one you already do, uh, delaying, delaying the peak really doesn't change. It doesn't change the magnitude. So you still get the same number of cases overall, uh, and it, it doesn't change the final outcome of the outbreak. What it does do, though, is uh, cause a whole downstream sequence of events. One one of the more obvious ones is the uh, economic impacts that, that travel bans can have. And, and uh, for a place like China, uh, we're already uh, starting to see what this, what this actually might do. Uh, China is the main manufacturing hub of things such as antibiotics, of uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, which are uh, gloves and masks. And, yeah. and, and, do you and need those things? <laughs> it, it turns out you do need those things in, in pandemics and, and for normal healthcare system functions. So um, the, the, the other thing that I worry about travel bans doing is that you, you, you get people who uh, want to uh, not show that they're from a, a place where the travel ban has come from. So they'll, they'll take flights uh, that, that stop in a few places and then end up in their, in their destination. Yeah. They want to get out or they, or they, they have, uh, you know, their own business reasons to get out. They won't, uh, show up in the way that we're doing diagnostics now, which uh, to get a diagnostic test for this outbreak, you either have to be epidemiologically linked back to Wuhan or a confirmed case, um, or you have to have severe pneumonia and all other tests for all other etiologies have come back negative. So uh, if you if you have travel bans in place and you have cases uh, wanting to hide their uh, their connection with China or with Wuhan, uh, you can get cases really quickly uh, being going undetected. Yeah. Travel bans. Uh, so if you could get them to a hundred percent. Which is very difficult to do. They do work on paper. They, they work in they work in modeling, and there might be some scenarios where you'd actually would want to do that. You you could consider doing that if, um, unlike in this case where you already had free flow of people uh, for more than a month from China to other countries before we really started detecting uh, this this uh, outbreak in large numbers, and so therefore you, you, there's there's good reason to think that you already have local transmission going on from China. So putting in travel bans now, you just, you, you, you aren't actually, you're going to stop the flow in, but, but you're already going to have local transmission going on. If you have an outbreak, which, uh, you, you think that you, you haven't had local spread yet and you can, um, do a hundred percent block. For example, if, uh, if you're like an island nation and you're, you can stop land border crosses, there's good reason to think that in extreme pandemic scenarios, and there's been some researchers out in New Zealand that have looked at this specifically, that, uh, maybe this travel bans are even with an economic, uh, impact that you'll, that you'll incur. Uh, are are worth uh, considering. However, so it's it's just a more so, nuanced conversation than, yeah. than travel bans as a knee jerk reaction to every uh, outbreak scenario. Okay, so so the case where it looks good is if you say like if you're Fiji, so you can like you can really cut off the the people coming in. Uh, it it already hasn't gotten a foothold in lots of other places, or it probably hasn't already come in uh, before you put in the ban. And I guess 
the fatality rate is so high or that yeah the, the the level of damage that it does is so high that you're willing to to pay a large cost to to stop people from coming in doesn't it still have this problem that so, so you're fiji and there's a very bad disease going around at some point you're going to have to reopen the border again right uh, you can't keep doing this for well i mean i guess you could keep it going for months but what are you going to do for years uh, and then and then at that point it will get in uh, presumably unless it's managed to completely burn out uh, by that time so it seems seems again like you're, you're maybe just delaying it rather than Truly, truly preventing it. That's what I worry is that is that you end up you, even if you if you have been successful and you have stopped those first few cases getting in by doing a travel ban early enough, um, you are most likely just delaying cases in your country, and that might get you something if you if if your response can be ra- rapidly upscaled in some meaningful type of way. Uh, but if if it can't, which it seems like most public health responses at the moment, really uh, uh, starting today or starting in three weeks, doesn't make that much difference. Mm. You might just be economically hurting your yourself with with no real gain. There's another more uh, complicated picture to this too about what what travel bans uh, actually have on a on a world stage uh, point of view is that if you have travel bans uh, against a place like China and uh, I'm a Southeast Asian country um, that that is very worried that if I suddenly start having a bunch of cases, people make travel bans against me as well, which I don't mm-hmm. economically want. I don't have a very good incentive to actually go look for cases. Mm-hmm. I, I might actually be disincentivized just from actually going. Yeah. So just close your eyes. So so and then uh, and you might you might hope that you don't have cases, but you're not gonna you're not gonna actively go look. And I think there needs to be a massive change to how we think about finding and ascertaining cases that really requires uh, uh, the world not responding in these knee-jerk ways that, that makes countries really, really bulk back against being truly, truly uh, uh, transparent about their actual caseloads. Okay, so three weeks isn't enough to come up with a vaccine. I guess possibly it could be a, enough to do some early research on which existing antivirals might help a little bit. You get like a, a bit more evidence in that time. So it might it's it's enough time to get a little bit more clarity, perhaps on the on the fatality rate of the disease. So I feel like we have a better idea now than we did a month ago, um, although we're still super unsure. Yeah, why can't healthcare systems or governments do more to prepare? It seems like is the UK in in the UK is the NHS say you know setting aside beds or figuring out what are they going to do. When it when it gets here, given that it seems like it's likely that at some point it's going to uh, end up going through the UK in a, in a pretty large scale. <laughs> not many health systems have beds to set aside. Right. There's yeah. not there's not many places in the world where that's a feasible option. I mean, this is the type of planning I'd hope you do before <laughs> an outbreak hits. <laughs> but the the idea of do you send people to the GP and uh, uh, how quickly can you get a test result back? Are you if you send people to hospital and it takes a few days to get a test result back, you might actually just be exposing people. To two cases. Maybe, maybe yeah. it's better to keep people at home and do testing at home so you don't actually have this uh, bringing into a central point where you have vulnerable populations like you do in hospitals or in, or in GP practices mm-hmm. um, that are being exposed. Um, so I think in, in many ways, uh, it's it's you don't get that much by, by delaying for a few weeks. So basically, they're going to end up muddling through with whatever their kind of plan is whenever it arrives. And in reality, so I guess it sounds like in theory, you could do a whole bunch of planning to try to help within those three weeks. But the reality is that there's not capacity to even do that. So, yeah. If you have, um, and so this brings us uh, to, to some points on um, on uh, quality of data that you could get in the early stages of an outbreak, um, which unfortunately we haven't seen that well. I mean, China, China's been arguably a bit more transparent than they were in SARS. Uh, they released the the genetic um, sequence, the whole genome of, of the uh, 2019 and COVID virus uh, fairly early on. But in terms of actual granular data on, for example, 
uh, onset dates of their cases and the number of tests that they're performing. Uh, they're, they're, they're reporting on confirmed cases, but we don't know what the denominator is of that, of how many people they're actually testing. You could get more data if, if more data was available, but very few countries are willing to, to share that or uh, yeah, allow others to access it. All right. So travel restrictions uh, don't sound so good, uh, but yeah, maybe let's talk about some of the ideas that you uh, would like. Uh, all of the incredibly powerful uh, listeners who are in government right now, just waiting to implement good policies to prevent incoming <laughs> future pandemics uh, affecting their countries uh, to implement. Yeah. Uh, what's uh, what's number one on the list? Yeah, no. So I think just just because we're talking about a current outbreak, it's, it's good to just uh, talk through some response response elements first. So we've already touched on a few of these, but I think it's important to to get get a, get a bit more into the details. Um uh the first one that I that I'd be most excited to see uh, uh initially is a, a drastic new change to how we actually do diagnostic testing. Uh this includes both the technology behind diagnostic testing as well as the protocols by which we go through uh deciding who gets tested. Uh so at the moment what we have is a system where you have to know of a pathogen first, know its genetic sequence and usually you develop a specific test to that pathogen. Uh, at the moment, the most common types of testing are, are uh, PCR testing, which is polymerase chain reaction, and it uh, allows you to detect a pathogen that has a certain section of its genetic code match this test. That's very limited in terms of anything new that comes out. You 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 always have to know about the pathogen beforehand, have to have designed and validated a test against that. Mm. Uh, there's uh, in the last few years though uh, some some new technologies that have come out that that are based on metagenomic techniques, which are, are pathogen agnostic diagnostics. So you don't need to know anything about the pathogen beforehand. You can uh, put uh, a, a clinical sample on and it will tell you all of the DNA that is in that sample. And so you'd be able to do things like a, a bioinformatics testing on this and be able to actually work out, oh, it's, uh, it, it matches against my, my uh, RSV or CMV or, or other known viruses, or this is completely new and it doesn't match anything in my bioinformatics data set. How does this work? So what, you take a sample from someone mm -hmm. and you break down, I guess, the, or the, like you break down the viruses and bacteria in there and then you, and it you sequences, sequence all of it? Yeah, it sequences everything. So wow. you'd imagine like 98% okay. of it is just human DNA, yeah. but you just, you just bioinformatically, you just kind of push that out and you, okay. you don't care about the human uh, DNA. Um, and then everything that's left over, you're uh, able to, to analyze. And so uh, this- is, is this affordable? Uh, so this was this has started being used in places like in 2014 in West Africa when there was some uh, diagnostic conundrums going on in the Ebola epidemic going on there. Uh, metagenomic sequencing, especially based on nanopore technology, which is uh, which is a fascinating way way to do this, uh, it is quite expensive in terms of the reagents that are being used. Uh, but the costs of that are coming down, um, and the accuracy of it is is going up. Uh, I, I personally think, though, that these these kind of uh, platform agnostic ways of looking at pathogens is really the only way forward if, to be on top of diagnostics. Um, it, there, there's there's really uh, always going to be a one step behind type picture if we have to wait to characterize a new pathogen and then design a new test for it based on PCR type methods today. So the idea is... Um we would just make this the normal way of diagnosing people with contagious diseases. So people come into hospital, they've got symptoms, and then you uh, do the sample and then you try to sequence everything. Uh, you see all of the viruses uh, that, that are going through there. And then you can see whether any of them are weird and whether there's a pattern of some new disease showing up, hopefully like really quickly. Yeah, yeah. And there's been uh, great studies that have come out looking at uh, uh, like, so fever and return travelers, for example, 60% um, of them <clears throat> never get a diagnosis, but there's something causing their fever. Yeah. Uh, people have gone on using metagenomic techniques and gone in and gone, what, what, is, the, what is the pathogen here? What, what are we actually 
actually have, as well as other diagnostic conundrums. So people have been starting to do this. It hasn't been adopted in wide scale yet, but I'd, I'd love to see uh, this adopted and you be able to have this in, in all healthcare settings. So you could have this in your emergency department. You know, you may, may first limit it to uh, just severe cases. So if you have a severe case, of, of a pneumonia or another, uh, or another disease. You don't have any etiology that you've been able to find. You're able to do these types of tests. This would mean that not only, uh, would you be able to, uh, have a reliable diagnostic from the get go before an outbreak begins. And then in the, for those first few cases, you might actually be able to, instead of the, uh, on average globally, we have about a 20 day, uh, lag in between, uh, first outbreak cases and detection of an outbreak for new, for new emerging diseases. That's way too long. If you could, if you could detect those first handful of cases of a new disease, uh, you're much, much, uh, more likely to be able to contain it. Yeah. Is, is there a way that this is cheaper? Because it's just like one machine that tests for everything uh, rather than having to have lots of different tests. So it's like you test one thing and then it comes back negative. It's and reagent like, limited though. So the reagents uh, themselves cost, cost money. Um, so, well, so, so what, what's a reagent? Reagents are the like the chemical uh, chemicals that are being used to be able to actually pr- uh, chemically process okay, interesting. The, the samples. What's what's this nanopore thing? So uh, so nanopore uh, is it, it's fascinating. I, love, I think your readers would be interested, or your listeners would be interested in in reading more about it. A nanopore is a uh, is a protein that actually allows DNA to pass through it, and it's able to it's able to read nucleotides one at a time as it okay. passes through this this uh, this small molecule that, that literally has a pore in the middle of it. If that makes sense. Okay, and how is that different from just uh, normal kind of sequencing of of DNA? Uh, so, well, like PCR testing, what you have to do is is you you have a small piece of DNA that you know about, yeah. and you um, amplify it. So you go in and you make multiple copies of it, and then you're able to 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 it, it comes up uh, as a as a positive on a band because it's able to to detect that that's present in the solution that you've put it in. This is a very different way of detecting DNA. This doesn't have to amplify your DNA, so you don't mm-hmm. have to you don't have to uh, uh, replicate the number. So it is one. And and two, you literally just put it through this little molecular machine and mm. it's able to read all the nucleotides that pass by it. It looks at the electrical charge of the nucleotides that are going by and is yeah. able to tell you which, which nucleotides it's it. It just reads it out. Okay. It just reads it out. And it, and it, uh, it theoretically and can read any length of DNA as well. It is not limited to truncated little portions of DNA. Is this in like beta testing or is this just a thing that, that, that does work as expensive or? Uh, it, yeah, no, no, it's been used since, uh, you know, for, for, for a while now. There's, there's companies in the US as well as in the UK that, that have employed it. Uh, but there's two limitations to it at the moment. Uh, one is the, the sensitivity of it. So the, the, the accuracy of its reads are not nearly as high as, as, as other sequencing techniques. And the other is the reagent cost. So the cost of the reagents that you have to put into it to, 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 for it to read a sample are, are still quite expensive. Okay. So nanopore is the thing that we've been talking about that yes. sequences all of the stuff. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. So if this is like the, the first best policy for how yeah, we're sorry, going to start sorry. detecting. So, so, so pathogen agnostic approaches to diagnostics. So this, what this yeah. means is, is that you can not only detect pathogens that you've never come across before um, and and be able to get a sense of that oh this is something new that's that's caused the death in this person not only that but you would theoretically if you could make this as ubiquitous as possible in healthcare yeah. settings uh, you wouldn't need to what what they're doing in the US right now which is uh, you know they've they've tested 400 people uh, for ncov but they could be testing a lot more and they could be getting a better sense of how many people have mild cases. Yeah. At the moment, protocols only let you test if you have a link back to China or a severe pneumonia. Uh, and what that will always mean if you have 
what we're seeing now, which is, you know, that, that there are at least some cases that are mild or, or maybe even just asymptomatic, you never fully know what the actual infection load is on your population because yeah. you don't have a good sense of how many people are actually infected until until you can confirm and test. Okay, so we should we could really clarify where it isn't isn't, and I guess also what the actual fatality rate is, and what, yeah, what's the distribution of the severity if we just started sampling or like testing a representative sample of people in a particular place yes. rather than just testing people who are who seem really sick. Yeah, I, I'd um, love to see a cohort study that just that just did this proper testing and actually got to uh, the bottom of how many low symptom or asymptomatic cases there actually are. Okay, so we want to get this everywhere, uh, anywhere that a new pandemic could start. Uh, <laughs> Is that realistic anytime soon? Like, is, is this, it seems like cost and just the difficulty of getting this into, you know, uh, poorer countries might be a bit of a challenge. Uh, yeah, no, if, if you could get, if you could get poor countries though, to be able to buy like licensure, to be able yeah. to, to, to manufacture the reagents on their own or, or other such things, you could imagine that, uh, that opposed to relying on, uh, on, uh, countries shipping all these reagents to places around the world, uh, you'd be able to have in-house uh, development. I, I, I don't think it's the easiest thing to, to, to employ by any means. Uh, however, I do think uh, because it would be such a game changer in these early moments of outbreaks that it would be worth investing in uh, overcoming these challenges. What's what's the worst part of this idea? What's what makes you most worried that it isn't as good as it seems? Uh, the accuracy. So it's also uh, so so like I was saying, the uh, reads that you get uh, are unfortunately not as accurate as as you would as you would hope from sequencing. And uh, what this means is is that when you bioinformatically analyze your samples, you you at the moment need expertise to be able to actually interpret that data. It doesn't a, 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 a normal emergency room department doctor, for example, would not be able to interpret the the reads that you get off of this at the moment you need a much more rigorous system to be able to tell you things um, about the actual data is it because you need to take account the possibility of partial matches because there's just going to be errors in it so you can't look for an exact match you have to be yeah 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 it it, it requires expertise and a bit of bioinformatics knowledge to, to properly actually understand the results coming out of this at the moment okay all right Pathogen okay. agnostic yeah, testing. I love fun. it. No, but, okay, but, yeah. but, but, but uh, we want to get this out everywhere. Yes. Uh, what, what, what do we actually want the government to do? Uh, uh, in, invest in this. Invest in invest in being able to figure out ways to make it uh, more more feasible to have it ubiquitous in healthcare settings. Uh, more accurate reads and a pathway so that other health systems can also have this type of technology. So we want the government to buy lots of these machines or to what, in, like invest in the stock of the companies that make this stuff, or I don't know, to give prizes for them if they meet like particular benchmarks. Uh, I I, th- I think. More research and development in this area is either through prizes as a way of uh, going about doing this, or thinking through um, other other incentive structures that you could do for development. Yeah, do you know if uh, these are being developed by like academics or um, by by government institutions, or is it, is it mostly kind of mostly companies that are making these? Uh, it's mostly companies that I'm aware of. So there's diagnostic companies in the US, and I know of Oxford Nanopore uh, here in yeah. the UK. Uh, yeah, so it's mostly been private companies doing okay. the investment. Okay, so I guess we could pay them to do research or, yeah, I suppose you could do for-profit investment or just buy a promise to buy lots of machines if they reach a particular level could be another aspect. Just say, well, the NHS will buy tons of these once they That would be a enough. very good incentive. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, I guess, is there any yeah. way of promoting this that's not expensive? Uh, is there any, any way of promoting it on the cheap? Uh, if, I mean, I mean, you could, you could have a uh, design price to see yeah. how do you make reagents uh, less costly. Okay, um, yeah. 
I mean, I mean, the other, the other, I mean, so you have private companies, you have academics as well, I know, are quite interested in nanopore technology in general. Uh, the other way you can do this is through like ARPA-like structures. And, and uh, as we know, the, um, you know, the US uh, uh, DARPA and IARPA programs have been really quite revolutionary in being able to, to get uh, kind of hard technological problems uh, solved. Uh, the UK has also shown a lot of interest in forming their own ARPA. And ARPA is a advanced research projects agency. It's a kind of the the US government. So it's part of their science and tech, uh, you know, funding. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it seems like yeah, the defense people might really love this because it was very good for protecting us against natural pandemics. But it also seems like it'd be really useful from a kind of biodefense if you wanted to you know protect against North Korea or whatever kind of uh, crazy people who might be developing diseases. Uh, this seems like the kind of thing that they're they're really into. Yeah, no, I think I think um, I think it's a win across on a lot of fronts. I think it helps you um, against natural pandemics. It also helps you if we if we had a accidental or deliberate release of something engineered. If you were able to to sequence what you have, if it's a novel pathogen, uh, it gets you far steps ahead. Yeah. All right. Okay. So that's idea one. How many? How many? How many things we have on the list? I've got, Sorry, I've got to figure 12. Out how many fo- okay, 12. 12. All right. I might have to cut down my follow-up questions. But okay. What's uh, what's number two? Uh, so, so in a similar vein, thinking through uh, vaccine platforms. So, so platform technologies in general, I think, are quite promising. So, so uh, at the moment, the way that we're designing vaccines, we uh, we have a pathogen in mind, and we develop a vaccine that's able to go against that. If you're able to take a step back and think through ways in which we could have more uh, underlying platforms that would be able to apply across a, a range of different viral species, uh, you you would be many steps head when, for example, you have a new coronavirus come out and we already know about other coronaviruses and we uh, would hopefully be able to have some uh, vaccine candidates that uh, would be uh, more readily adjustable to be able to apply to these. This requires a very different fundamental way of funding. And there have already been some initiatives that have have looked at, at ways you can actually get uh, new vaccines to licensure a lot more quickly than the 10, 15 plus years that we see for most vaccines. And one of the the most uh, prominent ones at the moment is CEPI, which is the Coalition for Epidemics Preparedness Innovations. They were announced in 2017 and currently have a 16-week target from uh, detection of a new pathogen and a candidate vaccine that they can begin testing. They then have a 30-week target for a million doses of that being manufactured, which is well, the, 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 I have two 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 mindsets about this. One uh, that's uh, aspirational and has never been never been done before. Yeah, um, it's never been done by them or anyone else before. We've never had a vaccine for a novel pathogen released in in those types of timeframes. So so it's good. At the same time, I also don't think it's fast enough. I think having a million doses in thirty weeks after after your first few cases for especially the types of pandemics I worry about uh, is is too long. Okay. So, so so both impossible and insufficient. Yes. Um, what, uh, what is it that's taking up 10 years normally? It seems like a long time. Uh, is it like safety testing? So, and, so, yeah. so, so the design build test of vaccines as well as other pharmaceuticals, uh, unfortunately, uh, is a very slow, laborious process. Is this including the whole time of, you know, coming up with candidates and seeing if they work and then it doesn't work and then you go back and try to come up with another one? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. As well, as well as like, like phase, phase one clinical trials, which looks at just safety. So a lot of, for example, like we don't have a SARS vaccine and that SARS happened 17 years ago. Yeah. And one of the reasons is is that uh, most of the candidates we've come up with have failed phase one trials, which is where you trial in a small, like 20 to 80 people group. And uh, you just look at safety. You haven't even looked at efficacy okay. yet. That's yeah. phase two and three. 
I see. Mm. And I suppose it's hard to test efficacy on that one because what are they going to do? Give them SARS? Uh, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. It's, it's hard to test efficacy. But if you fail yeah. safety in the first place, you also don't really, if, okay. you, if you cause a liver failure in someone, it's, it's, you know, you don't really move on to. So, okay. They want to take it from 10 years to was it four weeks. Uh, it what? would be great to to get a vaccine in four weeks. Yes. <laughs> uh, how are they? What's what's the word? Yeah, well, it seems the, like a long time to to, yeah, to, to cut it down. I, again, I think uh, I think we need to we need to stop uh, being limited by how we're approaching uh, novel uh, tech design and and drug and vaccine design in uh, today's day and age. I think mm-hmm. that we have tools in our toolkit that we just really didn't have in the 20th century when it comes to vaccines, where we could uh, really start using uh, things like uh, machine learning and other techniques to actually go, um, how do we do this in silico? How do we do this before we have to put it into an animal model or, or, or a human and actually be able to get a much better sense of a vaccine candidate being both uh, safe and efficacious before you actually get to the human test phase. You wouldn't be able to eliminate the human test phase, but if you could, if you could get a head start on being able to design these through uh, investment in vaccine platforms, yeah. uh, I, I think um, I, I don't think it's a uh, it's a completely intractable problem or insurmountable. It just will require kind of a radically new approach to vaccine development. So, by by vaccine platform, do you mean like some approach? from going from a pathogen to a vaccine that hopefully isn't so specific to a given pathogen. Something that's more a generic way of producing an immune reaction or yeah, of anticipating yeah. what vaccines yeah. to make. And then I guess maybe to scale them up much more quickly as well, the, the manufacturing. That's like, yeah. yes, that is exactly right. So so people have talked about this from a universal flu vaccine point of view, which we, we haven't been able to, to, to do quite yet, but there's, there's some promising avenues down that. What's a universal flu vaccine? Is that just like one shot that then protects you from all flus or? It, it's it's the idea of being able to, to either have a, uh, vaccine that yes protects you against all different flus and flu mutates quite quickly as an RNA virus and it uh, is able to uh, as most of us know uh, yeah. e- each each vaccine that you you might get each year it doesn't protect you the, the following year because the the virus has changed too much uh, so a universal flu vaccine uh, would be able to to protect you either uh, ongoingly or it would be a, a platform in which you could uh, develop uh, multiple doses for all right I love it okay mm. so we're gonna like Make vaccines faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, who yeah, do you, are there? Any particular groups that need funding here, or any particular research projects or uh, businesses? I, I think. I mean, like I, I, I'm encouraged by by Sepi's role. I think. Um, I think this is a. They, they've run into problems with regards to the, um, the. They chose four diseases to begin with, and they chose them because there's not a good economic incentive for these diseases to have vaccines developed against, and, and that's because there's just no guarantee that they're actually going to lead to to sustained outbreaks. And therefore, uh, companies that are yeah. making vaccines don't have an incentive to to kind of um, roll the ball and 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 uh, and risk uh, pouring yeah. a billion plus dollars that it takes to develop a vaccine yeah. into something where they never get it sold. I'm worried about the possibility that there won't be a terrible pandemic. <laughs> yes, is, is there a problem where if they come up with a vaccine that's really good, then that would then spot vaccination would be able to control the pandemic uh, really quickly, and so they wouldn't be able <laughs> to sell enough doses of the thing because they, 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 they stopped it from spreading. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's a conundrum of a lot of uh, cures, I guess that you'd have yeah. for any pharmaceutical or vaccine that you'd be developing as a company. Okay. Uh, is there anything more to say on, on this? I guess, what's, what's, what's the biggest weakness? I suppose it just sounds technically ambitious. Is the thing. It, it's very technically ambitious. <clears throat> but I, again, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about us being a bit more ambitious with this. I, I think in general that uh, we, we really won't be making much headway unless we start getting a bit ambitious with these types of projects. We manufacture vaccines, what is it, in like eggs? Or we have, don't we have some really primitive way of actually developing 
That's so. correct. So, so the the main way, especially with flu vaccines, there's a few different ways, but the yeah. the mainstay is is that you are reliant on chicken eggs, um, in which you inject uh, an antigen that's able to to make the the response against, and then you're able to then extract that from the egg and uh, use it as a vaccine. It's useful because it works, but yeah. it's uh, also limited by things such as egg supply, yeah. uh, which we've seen actually in uh, some uh, vaccine uh, manufacturing uh, problems. I, I was involved in that when I was working in communicable disease. In, um, in Australia with a uh, flu vaccine. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, so there's there's different ways that you can think about how you could do this where you don't need uh, eggs or you, yeah. you can use it, you can use it in some some other type of vat type yes. way. Yeah, do, I guess naively it seems to me that we want something like, uh, I suppose we have what, yeast that makes insulin? So we want to get some little yeah. microorganism that can just like churn out. We're like, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll chuck in the DNA for the whatever, you know, antigen uh, of the virus that we want to get the immune reaction to and then just get it to churn out that, that stuff in, in great quantities. Is that uh, one vision? That would be that would be a great research project that I'd love someone to, to, to solve <laughs> because it, it is it is a hard problem, but um, I, I, re- I don't think there's any biological reason why it's not not solvable. <laughs> Okay. All right. Uh, let's let's move on. Uh, what's 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 idea three? So idea three is in a similar vein, and it's uh, thinking through broad spectrum um, therapeutics. So so not only do we want to be able to diagnose disease and and prevent it with vaccines, but being able to uh, treat the unwell uh, with um, with effective therapeutics uh, can be quite difficult in in outbreaks. And we've seen that with this outbreak uh, at the moment. Uh, it's especially hard for viral diseases in which we have very few broad spectrum antivirals. Uh, available that are that are effective. Uh, I think again, uh, it's, it's ambitious, but thinking through ways that we could incentivize development into broad spectrum therapeutics, where you could have candidate treatments that uh, are potentially able to work against uh, certain pathogens. Um, and we've we've had two that have actually appeared in this in this outbreak that seem to have some efficacy. Um, however, I think we just mostly got lucky with that. I think um, if we had a truly novel uh, pathogen outbreak, uh, like from a completely new viral family, for example, that we'd be very, uh, very, very hard pressed to have any therapeutics that actually work. Yeah. So uh, this is something like having antivirals that are like antibiotics. So we, we, I guess we developed antibiotics that for almost any bacteria, we have some antibiotic that, that kills it, I guess, at least until they develop resistance. Is there some reason why technically we haven't been able to come up with broad spectrum antivirals in the way that we've come up with broad spectrum uh, antibiotics? Yeah, so so there's a few reasons that viruses are just notoriously harder to to develop uh, uh, pharmaceuticals against than than antibiotics. Um, and it it depends uh, on a few different things. One one of the ways that it's a lot more difficult is that uh, uh, viruses are usually uh, hidden intracellularly. Uh-huh. They're harder to to access. So you need to be able to um, either have the um, antiviral uptaken into the cell mm. itself. Um, uh, viruses are uh, uh, have, have all sorts of ways of being able to hide themselves against the therapeutic responses. They're co-opting the, the cell's own machinery to replicate themselves, right? So That's kind right. of attack- Attacking the things that they're doing is kind of attacking the human cell itself, right? So you get big side effects. Yes, yeah. And a lot of disease actually can come down to uh, uh, our own immune systems trying to clear infections, um, but ending up causing more tissue damage than the actual damage from the, from the culprit uh, pathogen itself. 
so, and antivirals in general as well uh, seem to uh, work on very specific mechanisms that are only usually specific to certain viruses and uh, are harder to make more uh, more generic than uh, than the ways that we've been able to kind of harness uh, our knowledge of how bacteria, for example, how how they divide and being able to stop that that process, um, mm. which which seems to be a bit more shared across a range of different bacterial species. Okay. So for a broad spectrum antiviral, I guess we need to target some very fundamental common element that that most viruses have or that most pathogens have. So so it seems like antivirals and antibiotics, they're kind of like things that have a particular shape that kind of lock onto some part of some process that Mm. and then like inhibit it uh, and make it hard for it to, it to go about its business is that, that that's basically what's going on We're trying to come up with something that's just the, the right shape like a, the right key for the right lock to to mess with that but yeah. nothing else a, a lot of it comes down to keys and locks is what the, is what <laughs> i studied t- biology yeah. in high school too <laughs> <laughs> um but uh there's other ways you can think think about you can you can think about the ways that you can help around immune system clearing infections as well too if you you know you might if you can just um put a little um uh, homing beacon on a, on a viral particle so that your own immune uh. system comes around and, and scoops it up it, it it's it's straightforward Again, Again, the, the the solutions to these are not are not readily available because they are hard problems. But again, I think I think we need to be thinking outside of the box, and we need to uh, instead of instead of the the current approach where we have specific pathogen and then have specific treatment developed for it, is these kind of uh, uh, more ambitious projects that are actually going to make a difference in novel pathogen outbreaks. Yeah. Is this something that has already got a lot of attention? I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm interested actually to ask that for all of the three things that we've talked about so far. Are these things where people have been banging their head against a wall for a long time? Or, or? Uh, they, they, they've all been talked about in the literature to some degree. Uh, they've been pursued to some degree by places like the WHO and uh, uh, you know, the, the US government's uh, NIH and, mm. and others. To the degree that they're pursued versus uh, uh, disease-specific mm. treatments, though, um, I think that they're they're more neglected. And so, um, I think that if you change the portfolio where you went, no, these are really priority areas. That yes, they're a lot harder to solve than single disease uh, therapeutics, vaccines, or diagnostics, but uh, they could make a massive difference for such a large range that they're worth it. I, I do think there are ways that you could have traction. So all of these three suggestions that they all have this character of not being focused on one particular disease. So it's like we'll have like generic screening for new pathogens and we'll have generic ways of developing vaccines faster. It's like the methodology for making and scaling up vaccines and then the the methodology for for producing, well, an antiviral that that doesn't target any one thing in particular, it's just targeting everything. Is there a reason why that stuff doesn't get funded as much? Maybe is it like harder to draw attention to just like the idea of improving vaccine technology as a whole rather than a vaccine for a specific disease? In my experience, we, uh, like I was saying before, I think we have been mostly reactive and not proactive. So we, we, very much have honed in on disease threats that are uh, emerging and and that we are, are faced with. We're not uh, until probably recently really thinking through uh, what we'd call like disease X scenarios, which is not a specific disease, but uh, the idea that uh, that something something new that's emerged might be a massive threat to the human species. Yeah. And so I, I really think this type of conceptualization is fairly new to most circles. Uh, it's just very much a different way of looking at a problem. It looks it's, a lot it's harder. How, like, it's not how like a typical doctor thinks about it. I guess they think about no. it, about particular particular pathologies, particular conditions, not about yeah medical technology as a whole. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it's 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 harder to think in this broad broad term way, and it's uh, it's messier a lot quick quicker as well too. But I think it's important. I think it's important, and I I, I do think it's uh, not something that we should throw our hands in the air yeah. at uh, because it's so difficult. Or yeah. 
Okay, so this stuff doesn't fit quite as neatly into typical funding and uh, I guess career progression perhaps. And uh, I suppose also people just aren't ap- appreciating the size of the prize here or just how important it is to have these generic technologies that can tackle new pathogens. Uh, but because we haven't yet had a pandemic that kills half of people, uh, it's like it's not quite in the forefront of people's minds how bad things could get. I, I, I really think that we, uh, in general, have been, uh, I mean, I mean, recent events may have changed this for some people, but in general, we're kind of complacent when it comes to thinking about infectious diseases. Those mm-hmm. don't really, especially in the Western world, seem to uh, uh, affect us that much on a daily basis. And we don't realize how vulnerable we are as a population to to viruses that are even emerging from nature, let alone engineered ones that could be could be yeah. potentially much worse. Okay, and I guess the, the biggest weakness of the broad spectrum antiviral is just that, again, technically it's really hard. Uh, it, yeah, no, it, I, I, would, I don't want to downplay that <laughs> yeah. at all. It, yeah. it, it is technically very difficult. However, I do think there's uh, there, there's at least there's at least some uh, momentum that we could get there, and um, yeah. we'd ha- at least have some candidates that could maybe be adjusted in in those four week period that that, that you could then uh, be in curtail to, to to a new new virus. Nice. All right. Uh, idea four. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, we we touched on this again before, uh, but um, I think it's an important one. Um, thinking through instead of having um, uh, each each nation having a pandemic influenza plan, having a pandemic plan, and so uh, the way I'd conceptualize this is that we'd have a plan that's both uh, pathogen agnostic again, uh, so it's 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 generic enough that you could tailor it to to any pathogen outbreak, um, and then it's adaptable too, depending on uh, different factors of what you're actually facing in that outbreak. Uh, the Transmissibility, the R not, the, uh, the 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 mode of transmission, as well as things like uh, how, how fast moving it is, how what the incubation period's like. Um, I think that this is harder for countries to do, and that's why they haven't uh, they haven't for the most part developed a a, a generic pandemic plan. However, I think uh, we're seeing now uh, that you can't really just take. Your influenza plan, and then and then uh, import it on yeah. top of NCOV or other things. Well, why is that? Why is why that- can't you import it over? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because uh, influenza is uh, not just a different disease, but we already have uh, different countermeasures available yeah. for it that we just really don't have uh, for NCOV. For NCOV, um, we actually got a bit lucky with the, the diagnostic side of things. We were able to develop a diagnostic in a few weeks. But that's mostly because it was so similar to SARS mm-hmm. that uh, the PCR test, if you actually look at the laboratory uh, testing for it, it's positive case control is, is actually SARS. <laughs> and so, so it's so genetically similar, especially in the region where you're doing the PCR testing. So the, the genetic region that we're actually doing the testing on is so similar that uh, uh, it only took a little bit of tweaking to make this diagnostic test. For novel pathogens that aren't from a viral family we've come across before, uh, you would actually uh, struggle for quite a bit longer. We didn't have a SARS test, for example, uh, months, for, right? for, for uh, nine months, actually, to get <laughs> to the point, and that was well after the outbreak was over. Um, to, we, had, we had one uh, that de- was developed in April, May, but it only returned positive after about 20 days of infection. So you had to be infected for about 20 so, days, which is well after you've stopped being... How um, the hell did they control SARS if they couldn't even diagnose people? <laughs> it's amazing that they did. It's amazing. So the way that they were diagnosing people is just based on symptoms. Um, and I've done some research uh, into this uh, as a part of my PhD, actually. Um, but um, they're, uh, the sensitivity of the case definition they're using, case definition is how you define if someone's infected or not infected. Um, the sensitivity of the WHO case definition was um, 26%. 
which is extremely low. That means that the, the majority of cases that actually have the disease um, are wouldn't turn up as a positive based on the the, the definition. I mean, it's even in the title. So like SARS stands for severe acute yeah. respiratory syndrome, which is the most non, non-district <laughs> way of defining a disease. Um, yeah. And so um, you can see how much you struggle if you can't even sort out who's infected and who's not. It's I, I'm amazed that we controlled SARS. Did we just get lucky? I, I, I don't understand. I, yeah, I'm just... <laughs> I sp- maybe I should get someone on the show who can explain how uh, the Yeah, so, so uh, we, we got lucky in a few ways. One, one way uh, we got lucky is that uh, it seems uh, that there wasn't, uh, looking back on it, there isn't any good evidence that people were transmitting uh, while they were not symptomatic. So, so uh, that makes it easier to control. Okay. We were also able to isolate cases. At the beginning, it took several days before when you started showing symptoms and when you'd be put into isolation. We were able to get that, that down to under two days. Which is which is phenomenal of public health services yeah. to be able to do this. The other thing with SARS is is that you had uh, you had uh, uh, nonlinear transmission uh, as well, which was uh, which was fascinating, but also uh, in some ways uh, perhaps perhaps helped. And that most uh, cases actually only generated about one extra case, and then you had a few super spreaders. Um, so you had a famous uh, Hong, <laughs> Hong Kong um, uh, hotel. Uh, I don't know if you know the the story behind this, but the, there was a doctor who treated cases in mainland China came back to Hong Kong. Um, and he was on the ninth floor of a hotel uh, and infected almost everyone on that floor, even people he never met, but just the air was circulating. And uh, that uh, they reckon uh, led to about 70% of the cases in Hong Kong, this one person. Wow. So so these super spreader events um, are scary and they can massively uh, cause upswings in your outbreak, but it also means that most of the other cases are not transmitting as much. So if you can get- so if you can stop the super spreading then- If you can stop the super spreaders or if, uh, if, it's, if it's only really- uh, super spreaders are occasionally happening and most other people are only generating one extra case, really strong isolation can really uh, make you control your outbreak. Okay. All right. Uh, sorry, what, what was that? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that was, uh, so pandemic planning. So so yeah. generic um, generic pandemic planning. What I think this is important for are, uh, yeah, are a few things. Being able to have it adaptable to 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 new diseases that, that, that might not look like influenza or, or, or things that you've seen before. The other is is thinking through um, that often you won't be able to just, especially for large scale pandemics, you can't just scale up the response that you would for smaller scale outbreaks. You can't just uh, you can't just uh, turn up the dial, as it were. You might need to adapt a different strategy at different points, and there might be trigger points for which you uh, at which times you need to do that. Um, most healthcare systems are already functioning at ninety five percent plus capacity, and so to think through how you'd actually maybe. Uh, not bring all your pandemic cases to a hospital that already has cardiac patients, that already has other people with other diseases that you want to continue treating, especially if... if, And that are especially vulnerable to getting sick with this. Who are especially vulnerable to getting sick. And what we've seen in other outbreaks before is that uh, nosocomial infections, which means you acquire them in a healthcare setting, really propagate pandemics. In in SARS, uh, in Taiwan, uh, and a few other places, um, more than 50% of cases were acquired in a hospital. Yeah. And there's, that, there's a bunch of that with Ebola as well, right? And yeah. there was there was that with Ebola as well. So you need to think of a different strategy opposed to just scaling up. Um, and and uh, yeah, so I think I think the, that, that, that that's a really important uh, point. Yeah. If, if and when, <laughs> probably most likely when, uh, uh, NCOV gets to the UK or the US, uh, do you think there's a case that they should be telling people who have um, low-level symptoms to stay at home? I guess if people need a respirator, then they've got to go into hospital. But uh, short of that, maybe they should just be staying in their room and trying to like not go anywhere near their housemates as much as possible. 
I think there, I think there's something to be said uh, for uh, if your health system can deliver this, uh, not having people who, especially are mild cases, going into uh, GP surgeries or into hospital emergency rooms um, and uh, potentially infecting other people in the in the process while they're waiting, especially if you have a few days uh, delay anyways to getting diagnosed. Uh, if, if you could set up your system so that you could do um, at-home testing of people um, you uh, and also at home um, care of the milder cases yeah. where people are uh, either cared for at their home or they're checked in on if they only have very, very mild symptoms. Um, but they're able to stay isolated and not transmitting it to others. Uh, that's a much better system uh, than bringing everyone to a central convening point where there's vulnerable populations. Uh, and some places have started thinking through this about uh, don't come into hospital, call us first, and then yeah. and then working through this. France is doing that. France, Fr- France is doing a phone call system. Um, um, in the UK, they're recommending calling triple one i'm not sure what happens after you call triple one um if you uh, but um but uh it, they're they're obviously thinking through different ways opposed to just saying come immediately into hospital which is not what you want to do with the transmissible disease yeah in every scenario so um do you have any uh, so, so so the the general suggestion is do a generic uh, pandemic plan or plan for a whole bunch of different scenarios did you have any other ideas of uh, what kind of what kind of actions are likely to end up in that plan I, I have personal wants of <laughs> of um, thinking through a plan like that could be something that, uh, especially thinking through GCBRs and uh, and larger scale events where you really want to protect the survival of populations, that uh, having strategies in place, having thought through what are the triggers at which you think you need to kind of invoke the next level of that strategy, if that makes sense, yeah. having that pre-planned out. Uh, can save you a lot of time on the ground in the middle of a of an event itself of having to scramble to think of okay what is actually the best solution here I think uh, it's hard to predict everything it's it's hard to it's hard to plan for everything but I think you can have various permutations of, uh, of at least plausible scenarios in which you can uh, have done some pre-thinking in peacetime, as mm-hmm. it were, uh, that really help you in, in in an outbreak response situation where you need to be making rapid decisions. Yeah. In the episode, uh, we suggested that people should have food at home so that, uh, you know, in, in one of these worst case scenarios, they, can, they do have the option is open to just stay at home and not go out. And I guess ideally, from a public health point of view, it would be probably be very nice if lots of people just had so much food at home that, you know, at the drop of a hat, people could just decide that they're not going to leave the house for the next few weeks. And, and then that can be used as a way of uh, stopping the spread of a disease uh, is, is, that, is that on point uh yeah no i think uh, <laughs> i think that's i i, I yeah I, I would i'd hesitate to to kind of uh caution people that this pandemic or this yeah. uh this outbreak as it were it was going to get to that level necessarily because yeah. it's all still uncertain but um uh yes yeah, things like that things like social distancing in general mm-hmm. uh, uh the reason that uh, that Biology is scary in this way, is because it's uh, because it infects human hosts, and then it's able to spread human to human. It needs, but it needs to be able to have a transmission uh, pathway to be able to do that. You distancing yourself in in a larger scale outbreak is one of the best ways to protect yourself. So if you have resources at home, that's quite good. That that brings to another point in a pandemic plan of something that you'd really want, which is if you if you had a large enough outbreak, uh, things such as um, long supply chains can get really affected. Mm-hmm. That's both for for food, especially in places where where uh, food production is not at the levels needed to sustain a population. It's also for essential items such as uh, such as your antibiotics, essential medicines, 
respirators and personal protective equipment, uh, PPE. Um, and uh, it's something that I uh, that this outbreak right now we might actually what we'll see downstream effects yeah. of of uh, of things like if China's production of things like gloves and respirators and antibiotics um, go offline because there's less people working or because uh, trade is affected. Um, that can actually seriously affect healthcare systems. A lot of healthcare systems, you you only have a few days worth of supply. We saw this with normal saline uh, back when there was um, some Caribbean um, extreme weather events. Um, normal saline um, and was uh, the supplies were affected in the United States and, and other places around the world. Heparin at the moment, because of African swine fever in, uh, in China, heparin supplies around the world, which is a very essential medication uh, for a range of, of hospital uses because uh, it stops clotting, uh, was it has been affected and is still being affected right now. Being able to think through, okay, if I don't have domestic uh, stockpiling of enough extent, or if I don't have production, is there ways that I could either have a a uh, system where I just turn online production of things like gloves, of things like respirators, of things like antibiotics. Maybe it's not economically feasible for me in the UK to be making yeah. all of those things, um, you know, at cost and uh, at times. But if I had a system in place where I could at least, uh, uh, you know, turn turn on production of those types of things, and and therefore get around the problem of supply chain cutoffs. Okay, so the general suggestion is do a whole lot of game planning of how you're going to deal with this stuff. Yes, is, yes, is, that's is, a is, pandemic is, plan that's is, adaptable and generic. Yes. Is there any uh, any case against prioritizing doing this? Uh, what's what's the argument against it? Is uh, or maybe this is just too common sense. I guess uh, so. I guess done done poorly. Maybe maybe it's uh, maybe you'll get surprised by something that you um, <laughs> that you, you haven't planned for. But I guess that's part of how well you plan. Um, I guess uh, for some of these for some of these things, especially uh, if you need to massively increase the the capability and capacity of your healthcare systems, that could cost quite a bit. However, I think there are uh, ways that you could think through about uh, uh, you know uh, things where it's only in these scenarios themselves that you suddenly start spending uh, a lot of money on, on doing this. For 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 example, like like I was saying, like the supply chain idea. Um, um, or or changes to how you do healthcare system response. Yeah. Um, I was kind of surprised to find out that this hadn't already been done. Are there any countries where they where they have done this? I was surprised that there wasn't really pandemic plans before two thousand and nine <laughs> in a lot of countries, and then yeah. only then are, are there really pandemic influenza plans. Um, yes, there are countries that have thought more through uh, generic pandemic planning. A lot of them haven't framed it in this kind of way. Uh, they've either they've either looked at um, kind of uh, either public health emergency response planning is the kind of the generic way that they're looking at, and they look at a whole range of scenarios that aren't just infectious disease contagious scenarios. Um, or they've looked at things like um, the US, for example, has done a bit of planning around if smallpox was released, for example, um, or other pathogen-specific uh, scenarios. Um, I think, again, it's it's quite ambitious to, to, to be thinking through so many permutations. Uh, I just, uh, I think the, the payoff that you get from having done that kind of hard background work just pays for itself in, in an event that where, where it's unprecedented. All right. Uh, what's the fifth idea? The, the the fifth idea is thinking through a different approach to how we do travel bans and having it much more evidence based than the kind of knee jerk reactions that we have. I, I I don't think it's the case that in all scenarios we shouldn't do travel bans. I think there are a few uh, trigger scenarios in which they are a good idea. I also I just think that uh, 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 d- doing it in this ad hoc way can cause more harm than than good, and we need to actually think through the pros and cons. Okay, so it's just the, it's the thing that people jump to right away. It, it, it's a thing that a government can can do, yeah, and, and it and be may, seen to be done. Doing and, it, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so basically, 
this is this is do a proper cost benefit analysis of under what circumstances, probably fairly unusual circumstances, it would be worth having a travel ban. That's correct. Okay. All right. I'm not going to ask if there's any downsides to that. It does seem probably worth putting someone on that. Okay. Uh, what's uh, what's the sixth idea? Uh, so the sixth idea is uh, is um, a little bit of a departure from what we've been talking about, but um, data sharing. So um, at the moment, what we've seen is a real reluctance to uh, provide and uh, and uh, share um, granular data on outbreak cases. China's not alone in this. I think uh, most countries, if they were the ones experiencing this outbreak, would also have similar reluctance to be sharing data. I think we need, as a as a as a global community, a really different approach to this. Um, at the moment, we have what uh, the WHO is relying on, which is the International Health Regulations, uh, which last updated in 2005, which showcases internationally the absolute maximum countries need to do when it comes to things such as uh, public health response and and support of 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 other member states and um, and data sharing and and there are requirements under the international health regulations to share certain data with the WHO and then the WHO is able to share uh, what member states agree to out of that. I don't think this is nearly enough because I think what what we're seeing now it's it's very frustrating that we do have uh, expertise in places like the UK and the US that really uh, could be. Um, helping understand this outbreak a lot more if we had access to de-identified data of uh, things like um, onset dates of, of cases and testing numbers and other such things. We'd have a much better idea of what the case fatality is and what responses actually work. And um, so I, I think this is more of a kind of a uh, international relations type problem, uh, which is not my area of expertise, but uh, there's there's a lot to be gained for if we actually established in in peacetime ways to to, to share public health data rapidly in in fast moving outbreaks why are countries so reluctant to to release this information i mean it seems like china is already getting slammed like how much worse can it be if they release you know more data on the specific cases I, I think um, I, I think they, China's I, a cagey country in general, but you, I guess it sounded like you were suggesting that other countries might do the same thing. I, I think countries would fear backlash. They'd fear backlash about uh, either uh, it would be uh, it's politically sensitive for, for some of these things. It's uh, it can be politically embarrassing to, to for other countries to realize if they uh, were too slow to act uh, at certain stages, or they had uh, problems with with instigating certain parts of their response. Having uh, too many too many cases looks bad, and they 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 might f- rightfully fear things like uh, travel bans or effects on their uh, economy or 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 trade. Yeah, because it seems like they're not especially careful about like which they are being very strategic about what they share and what they don't. Um, it seems Correct. like in many cases it's just like there's not that much damage to. Uh, but I mean, there have been a bunch of papers that I've seen that have you know uh, descriptions of a hundred different people cases of people who had it and like how long did it take? Did they recover? What symptoms did they have? So so there is some information sharing. It's yeah. just not, it's not everything that we'd want. And and the, and there are Chinese authors and and uh, and uh, international authors on 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 a lot of those papers. Uh, and it's much better than than what we saw, for example, in SARS um, or or in MERS as well too, which also had. Uh, problems around data sharing in the Middle East. However, uh, it, it seems that no countries really kind of uh, led the way with going. No, that we 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 want this, we need this, and we ourselves are willing to give up our data. I think I think you'd you'd, you'd have problems with uh, you know, you know most countries actually wanting to to really be as transparent as possible with this type of data. Is there any way of having you know international multilateral or bilateral treaties that make it like more mandatory with you know punishments for not following up? Well, that's what the international health regulations uh, mandates, at least in member states. But it's not a mandate to release publicly. It's a mandate to to so, share with WHO and other other member states. And so, and then they can't pass it on necessarily. 
not it, it it's it's uh it's specified in there what the what the absolute maximum is that that, that can be passed on okay. yeah so so what can be, i guess it's convincing countries to do the follow-through on this to actually follow those regulations or do we need to change the international health regulations so that there are you know there's more punishment for for not following them or do you have any i suppose this is the international relations aspect this is yeah i mean i mean it gets politically sensitive for all sorts of reasons i do think though that uh that if as a global community we just decided that uh information sharing of of outbreak data is just too important to to really fall by the wayside that uh that we really want to uh, make it mandatory in ways uh, that, that's transparent, not just uh, not just as a reporting mechanism to the WHO, but as a transparency mechanism to the rest of the world. Uh, I do think I, I, I do think that uh, it could be hard. It could be quite hard to do this, but that uh, that we could make headway. I know that you can have kind of a pre-commitment thing where it's kind of any government mm-hmm. in the moment doesn't want to share this data, but if they've put in place processes that just inexorably go about the process of sharing all of this information uh, and it's uh, difficult to stop uh, because, say, the law says that the government can't uh, prevent the, the data from being released, so they'd have to go to parliament and you know, change the legislation and do all these other things. Whether <laughs> No one's going to want to do it in the moment, but if you don't know if you're the government that's going to have to release this information, maybe you're willing to pre-commit future governments to do it because it seems like a good idea. Is there- I mean, yeah, that sounds that sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> um, it would, um, yeah, it would be nice to to see. We see this in um, as well. Uh, uh, for example, in another area that I've been involved in is the Biological Weapons Convention, um, and there's confidence building measures that uh, the countries report every year. Um, unfortunately, only about 40% of these countries report them on time, um, and very few actually report them publicly. It's it's voluntary if you make them public or not. The ones that do, though, like like, like the U.S. and like the U.K., um, I think are could show could showcase that you know we can actually do this. We can actually show that that we're we're committed to this, and that 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 we're and you could do something similar here with regards to public health outbreak data um yeah you just you just need to get some momentum going on this and then and then make it an international norm that 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 uh that public health emergencies uh, step beyond these kind of political considerations can, can we can we pay countries to share their data so this is an economist we're just like <laughs> show, show them the money yeah yeah <laughs> Can you think of any ways that uh, data sharing arrangements could backfire? That maybe it's good for countries to, to not share their information. Well, I mean, I mean, there's selfish reasons uh, to to not share your data, and uh, and, and yeah, the, like I was saying about travel bans before. You know, if, if if countries sometimes are transparent about their number of cases, they rightfully have a concern that, uh, that there's going to be there's going to be restriction of travel and trade against them. And so, um, yeah, the incentives aren't really always in the favor of, of, of sharing. Uh, the other thing I've thought about before with regards to this is um, pathogen sharing, which um, I do feel it has has nuances that could be quite uh, uh, risky as well too, but on, on net uh, quite useful. And this is, um, it's good to share genetic data on, on new, new viruses and bacteria that are causing outbreaks. However, um, sharing live pathogen itself is what you really really actually need to be able to uh, develop things like vaccines. And so um, instead of uh, like what we did in this outbreak, which is waiting for um, cases to appear in your country, um, like places like like in Australia. So Cicero in, in Australia was able to take clinical samples from an Australian patient and um, culture the NCOV virus and grow it en masse so that they can now uh, lead for the CEPI response, the vaccine manufacturing. Um, if you didn't have an Australian case, though, um, and you only have genetic 
data. It's it's quite hard to just boot up a virus from scratch. Um, it's also quite um, from a kind of risk point of view. I, I get <laughs> I get a bit worried about uh, about uh, viral design. Um, but um, uh, being able to share have rapid sharing of pathogens, so you can actually have your countermeasures getting developed a lot quicker. I feel like there's massive strides we could be making in terms of um, of, of ways we could be approaching this in the world. Okay, uh, I suppose this is a nice one that doesn't cost anything in the budget. Uh, <laughs> committing to, to showing the data. Uh, what, what's the what's the next idea? Okay, so now we're moving on to prevention. So this is uh, this is now thinking uh, outside of this outbreak, uh, which we already kind of have been, but um, uh, thinking before you're in an outbreak scenario, um, uh, what are things that you can do to actually prevent one from occurring? And I, I get very excited about preventing these types of events from happening. I think it's much worse to be uh, scrambling and responding, even if you have the best response possible. It's always better to be in the, the world in which you prevented it in the first place. Um, and so one of the first ideas, which, uh, which I think could be, uh, something that's quite feasible in the next, next decade or so is, um, environmental biosurveillance. So this is, uh, uh, the idea that you could actually, uh, do, uh, widespread environmental sampling and be able to detect new pathogens before outbreaks actually occur. Um, this can occur in a few different places and in a few different ways. Um, and it comes back to, in many ways, the metagenomic uh, sequencing that we were talking about before. But the idea that you could go out and take uh, samples in environments, especially things like, uh, uh, you know, taking air samples in places like airports and and going out and, and sampling uh, wildlife that comes into contact with, with humans and being able to detect new viruses, new bacteria um, that have a, a potential of, of causing um, a pandemic in, 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 in our species uh, before, uh, before you have your first few number of cases. Um, I think this requires a really new approach, though. To, to how we actually go out and gather data. And um, there's uh, there's been some uh, efforts, especially after anthrax in 2001 in the US to do uh, biosurveillance in some ways. So the BioWatch program um, it was set up where you, you, can, you can see it when you go to, to the US and you go to their, their um, to their uh, metro lines and whatnot, you'll see this uh, thing that looks like a sophisticated vacuum cleaner that's literally sucking the air and then sampling it for things like anthrax um, and uh, and other dangerous pathogens. Um, unfortunately, that for for various reasons I, I won't go into too much detail here. It didn't didn't work that well and it wasn't as cost effective as you want. But um, I think with modern day technology and things like metagenomics, you could actually detect new pathogens before we have outbreaks. Okay, so this is similar to the idea of doing the you know full spectrum screening for for patients who come into hospitals who have uh, diseases that we can't uh, easily identify. Yeah, um, but we're going to do it uh, just at like random places. We're going to grab samples from airports and do the same thing more or less. Yes, uh, I guess so. One case against this would be that it's super expensive. We're just going to have to like sample so many things. It's just the same cost issue. Is there also a concern with like with false positives that we're going to have so many? We're now going to be sampling so many things. Uh, that will constantly be worried because well, be, presumably like new viruses, new things like appearing all the time. And like, how are we going to tell which ones are actually dangerous? Yeah, we'll have to get much better at actually being able to predict um, pathogenicity from from viruses, which which is also fraught with some some risky problems. I, I might go into in a second, but um, um, we uh, you you detecting a new pathogen, for example, I could go to a bat in the world today and detect some some new types of viruses. People people have been doing this for for a while now about going out and just detecting new new species. Uh, how do I know that it could even infect a human cell? It's actually very, it turns out very hard to predict that it can it not only cause a um, cause an epidemic, 
but can it even can it even infect a human cell uh, isn't isn't as straightforward to predict at the moment as possible. However, our ability with especially with like machine learning techniques and 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 uh, other new approaches, uh, I think, are going to massively make a difference in being able to to make these types of predictions a lot more accurate going forward. I also think there's just uh, a lot that you get from gathering the sheer amount of data that, that there are ways that we could uh, we could massively um, upskill ourselves as a species um, in, in, in that, that, that would require quite a few iterations of being able to do this and then realizing wow there's a lot out there we've just never detected or seen before um, but the more that you get used to the idea of like no no this doesn't cause disease and this this is unlikely to cause disease and you get a bit bit more granular picture you start you start you know you start you start getting uh, that sorted out the, the more you're able to sample so they are saying like the more we sample, the more we get a picture of what's normal, and it's easier it is to detect what's what's new and concerning. Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. yeah. and so okay. people are doing this on metagenomics on humans at the moment of okay. going like what what in the gut microbiome is actually yeah. uh, normal and what's not normal, I what's see. what what correlates with the disease state and what doesn't. So it's a bit like how the immune system is trained to just identify antigens that it that it, yeah it's good enough yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as we collect more and more samples okay it's machine learning actually going to do these things uh, it's, uh, it was like wave the hand machine learning I don't know. <laughs> machine learning will solve the mysteries of the universe and do, be able to tell just from a dna sequence whether something can infect a human cell seems hard to me no 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 i agree it seems hard it seems hard what, what you really need is to have like a uh a really good in silico representation of what a human cell is actually like well obviously you- <laughs> what, what does that mean <laughs> Uh, I think we're making good progress and are making good headway. I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged by fields like um, in protein design and other ones where we're, you know, that we're, we've gone from a world where we really like the design build test cycles and in, in a variety of fields uh, really have only in the last few years been all we actually can do and accelerate some of these steps with machine learning. So what's, what's in silico representation? In silico representation. Oh, in silico representation. Yeah, sorry. Okay, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, do you have any any similar skepticism for like oh. maybe this problem just sounds like it might be. Uh, I suppose this is the one that this is maybe the first one on the list. I'm a little bit skeptical of whether it's uh, practical. No, uh, I agree. I, I think this would require massive infrastructure investment and um, a really, a, a, like I said, a, a, an upswing uh, a, a to to our actual. Uh, understanding, uh, especially being able to interpret all this data. If you suddenly started collecting this amount of data, you'll you'll uh, very quickly uh, need to find better ways of mining through it. Um, yeah, I, I suppose it's not that I know that this mm-hmm. is impossible. There's something about it. Just seems like simulating something so complex as like uh, you know a virus in the human body. Uh, it just seems like so much is going on that I'm that I'm. I don't know. So no, something about me is kind of skeptical about whether that's possible. Yeah, bio is a hard problem. <laughs> yeah. And uh, unfortunately, you none should of try that. economics yeah. also. Not so, yeah. Uh, no, I agree with you that yeah. uh, uh, it, it, it is complicated. Many things are it hard, is yeah. complicated. I remember working in a research lab ten years ago where we uh, we it was we became famous for uh, for simulating a single beta cell in the pancreas that could release insulin, and it was like phenomenal at the time. Um, and you realize just how much is going on in any given cell. However, uh, I I I uh, I do think there's headway that you can make. I don't think any of these things completely protect you a hundred percent. I don't think I don't think environmental biosurveillance is going to detect every virus or bacteria before it causes disease in humans. I do think though, it, it, if you if you could reduce the the risk by sixty percent or something, you've made massive headways in this yeah. area. So um, I guess I'm this cautiously is maybe, optimistic. It's perhaps like more 
imagine that we do the first thing first, which is like which is testing the people who are sick, and then having really improved the technology for scanning that and made it a lot cheaper. Then then this one starts to seem a whole lot more practical. Yeah, uh, it's like or maybe this is like this is something that's going to take more more like decades to produce than uh, than something that we can start scaling up in the next few years. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I just I don't realize how how advanced the technology has gotten in this area. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, with tech development in general, I think there's just different ways you can you can think about actually the speed of progress for this. I mean, like you you can imagine, you know, um, you know, with without Manhattan Project style approaches to solving really difficult problems, um, how long it actually takes to 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 do kind of moonshot type type projects. Um, uh, I, this is why I think this is, uh, this is an area where unless you get major buy-in in terms of, uh, instead of just trickling in, you know, uh, a few million dollars for, for one, you know, PhD student to do yeah. a project or something <laughs> like this. Um, but you actually had a, you had a, you actually had a government that really just went into a uh, full mode of, I want to get, um, secure from biological threats. Um, you will see a very different type of technological response. Um, what was wrong with the thing that the Americans did with Andrew? What was it called? The, the biosurveillance program? Uh, well, why, why didn't Bio that watch, work? Biowatch. Biowatch, yeah. yeah. So it had what you what you described uh, or, or alluded to earlier of uh, lots of false positives. Uh, it, it only is able to test for, I think, eight different pathogens as well. Um, it, it had, it, they break down quite a bit. It cost a lot of money as well too. Um, and it seems that, um, in general, like this, this type of approach to the way that they're, the way that testing is actually done in that machine, uh, is, uh, it's pretty rudimentary compared to modern day standards. Um, I do think like the aspiration and the, um, kind of the, the at least the intention, uh, was actually quite quite good. It's maybe it's an idea the, that's a bit ahead of its time. Oh. It, it, it was a bit of ahead of its time, and uh, it also the like the follow up and the iterations that you would have needed for it uh, just just didn't eventualize. So. Yeah. Okay. What's the next one? Um, so yeah. So this one, yeah. Okay. This is a little bit uh, uh, departure from what we've been talking about before, but um, thinking through about getting more transparency around laboratory accidents. So when I'm when I think through pandemic scenarios, I generally divide them into three main categories of natural, accidental, and deliberate as the kind of broad categories of things that I'm concerned about. Um, I'm particularly concerned about laboratory accidents in places like BSL-3 and BSL-4 laboratories um, because these are the laboratories where that, that can be working on dangerous pathogens that are capable of causing um, um, epidemics and outbreaks in humans. And um, uh, there's concerns that especially with, uh, with certain types of experiments that are going on and, and different ways in which pathogens are being modified in ways that they're not being modified in nature, that a uh, laboratory accident could could uh, could cause an outbreak that uh, is is worse than what we'd see from from um, from a natural pandemic. At the moment, there's not much transparency around uh, around how frequently um, accidents occur. We 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 do know that there's historical examples of outbreaks occurring from from uh, laboratory accidents, um, but uh, generally the 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 industry and uh, not just in the UK and the US but around the world has been. Uh, very low in transparency about how frequently accidents occur. And until we have that type of information, there's not much we can uh, do to start tackling biosafety problems that might be putting us at risk as a population. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the conversation with Howie, uh, mm. he pointed out that there was a, a BSL-4 lab, so like I think the most secure um, yep. biosecurity lab uh, in, in the UK. 
uh, twice two weeks apart, like managed to release, was it foot and mouth disease uh, right next to a farm where they had cows? So it was actually like a release of a yeah, of the disease the, from the wastewater, yeah, that caused the whole um, foot, uh, foot and mouth disease, disease um, yeah. epidemic yeah. in 2007, yeah. And uh, I was astonished to find out that they don't have to declare these uh, these breaches of uh, BSL uh, standards if a disease escapes. Uh, I guess in that case, people found out, but they, uh, they they tried to hide it or they tried to delay people finding out. Is there any case for not having transparency here? <laughs> Just to consider the other side. Should people be able to keep secret the things that they do that endanger the future of human civilization? <laughs> Uh, no, I can't think of any okay. reason. Yeah, no. Is this expensive to post the PDF online of the thing that you did? That it's, a, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing yeah. to have uh, yeah, needles stick in your... Oh, I mean, there's... I mean, I guess... Uh, I don't think this is a good reason, but um, uh, you could imagine, uh, you know, uh, laboratories uh, might start worrying that they actually might be liable <laughs> for <laughs> causing outbreaks. And this is something that uh, heaven many haven't... Um, Many haven't considered about how the the the, the liability that they'd actually have um, um, if they caused a s- sustained um, outbreak, so transmission beyond just their own staff, that which would fall under like occupational health and safety or other other such rules. Yeah, we actually talked about this in the episode with Owen Cotton Barrett mm-hmm. uh, ages ago. Maybe it was episode twenty eight from memory. Yeah. Um, I think he was saying that labs should be liable for the external damage. Like if, if they release a pathogen and then lots of people die or it causes massive economic harm, then uh, they should be liable. And they sh- therefore, they should have to get insurance ahead of time to cover the payouts that they would have to pay if they, uh, if they were legally liable for the damage that they did. And that this would appropriately price the cost of doing these experiments. That if it's not worth getting the insurance because... Because uh, the insurance premium is really high because it's very dangerous because you could do $10 billion of damage to the economy. <laughs> but if, if you mess up a pipe, uh, then uh, it's, it's kind of sending the right price signals to people about uh, just how um, how many external costs there are to the research that they're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. So that, 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 that idea has a bunch of other problems, uh, practical problems that we discussed on that episode. It, it does. And we've we've had uh, we've had someone at, uh, yeah look into this before for us. And there's a lot of, of nuance to it. Um, um, but um, I do think there's there's things to be said there. And there's not many people that are thinking through uh, these these types of effects in this type of way. So, um, OK, that one seems seems really good to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do, do you anticipate problems getting that up? I, I imagine perhaps that scientists working in these labs won't be keen on this. Uh, yeah, who who wants to have work, to announce more, their mistakes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and also um, uh, how public and transparent should that, that type of data be? Um, and also, I, I guess another point against it, again, the human behavior element of uh, uh, if you have to report, does that discourage reporting? How do you get incentive structures? And I've talked with um, biosafety officers in uh, U.S. laboratories before about this, about about um, how how the culture of labs actually could can be affected depending on how you instigate these um, these rules. Yeah. So so, yeah, there is this problem that if you have to tell if you tell anyone, then you have to tell everyone. Does mean that it creates an awfully strong incentive to tell no one at all uh, to 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 keep it secret completely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and if it could uh, shut, I mean, we 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 saw, um, you know, at uh, Fort Detrick, uh, there was a there was a military lab that was recently shut down because of biosafety breaches and whatnot, uh, which is, uh, you know, I think a good thing. It shows that the, you know, like uh, if there's safety breaches, there's going to be shutdowns. However, uh, you can imagine, um, you know, you, you you might not want that to be to be known if you know that that's going to be the outcome for your lab and you have an incentive to obviously sure. keep your. Your your job, okay, <laughs> and yeah, your lab so, running. So that is the yeah the other side of the coin. Mm. All right, uh, what's 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 the next idea? 
Uh, so uh, something that we've thought about quite a bit at uh, FHI is uh, uh, DNA synthesis screening. And so um, uh, at the moment, um, there's a, a massive upstream in the, in the number of uh, uh, academics and private companies who, who uh, order um, DNA um, that's been synthesized by companies offsite. Um, and uh, at the moment, there's there's no country that, that legally requires that DNA to be um, screened for uh, dangerous pathogen sequences, for example. There's quite a few companies that have signed up for uh, screening um, uh, on their own accord, and there's been uh, international consortiums brought together to go. It's actually really important to, to screen your orders. Uh, however, there's uh, no legal mandates in which, in which to do this. Uh, this really came to light uh, after, in 2006, actually, a UK Guardian newspaper, um, uh, some of uh, the journalists there decided to order a 78 base pair sequence of smallpox to a residential London address. And um, 78 base pairs is not enough to, to be a danger to the public. So there was the public wasn't at risk. Um, but they wrote up this expose about how really they shouldn't have been able to do this, <laughs> that uh, they shouldn't have been able to just mail order a sequence of smallpox to, yeah. to a residential address. Should have been flagged somewhere. So it should have been flagged somewhere. Uh, and so, um, uh, yep, so there's been, there's been uh, international uh, momentum at being able to get screening up. Some companies have voluntarily signed up for this. However, um, uh, the, the uh, quality of the screening that they do do if they, if, if they choose to, um, as well as the fact that, uh, they, they only screen o- over a certain size. They only usually only screen over 200 base pairs. Um, uh, um, so they don't screen oligios and, um, and, and, and shorter sequences, um, means that you, uh, have a real security problem with regards to, uh, people being able to, uh, potentially, potentially um order Just things chop it into tiny pieces and then put it back together again or i mean that that, that requires quite a bit of technical okay, yeah. knowledge it's not a you know we i, I don't want to don't yeah. want to uh, portray the idea that uh, that it's, it's, it's just to easy to, to to make your own live virus or anything like that but it does worry me with regards to uh going forward about about uh, uh we've known about this problem for for you know more than a decade now uh, how do we how do we regulate an industry that that could be a real source of risk uh, the other thing is, is that um, even if as a as a company, if if I want to screen my orders, uh, um, you know, that takes time. Uh, I, I, I what do I do with with when I get uh, a suspicious order? Is there is there a reporting mechanism in place? It's not totally clear if that's that's the case. You just phone them up and be like, so we noticed that this was smallpox. So I'm just curious <laughs> what you were planning to do. <laughs> it's an awkward conversation, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> uh, but but it becomes a real security problem. And it also uh, I also worry that if um, if we don't govern or regulate this properly um what you'll do is which is what a lot of countries have done uh, which is um switch their orders to uh, india and china which don't have these types of oversight mechanisms even voluntarily in place and so i I feel like there's a lot of wins to be made with um with having uh with having western countries lead on uh making this uh making this uh, governance and regulation much much stronger um working with dna synthesis companies so that it's not an economic hit to them uh making it so that the screening itself is 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 much more uh reliable than 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 what we see at the moment it seems like this is a problem that desperately has to be solved uh, i suppose there's problems with each of the solutions i mean if you create a big database of like all of the worst things then that seems like it's a bit of a hazard as well given that we don't have good computer security I and mean, you have to create a database of everything to compare it with right and you really want to stick that all in one place for someone to, to steal yeah exactly you know it's it's it's, it's very hard and so that, that, that comes into the problem of of uh, uh 
uh, for for knowing something is dangerous, you've you've now put that information into the world, and that that's fraught with its own problems. Um, I think that this needs a lot more careful consideration, and I I would hate that we, this is another category in which we wait for something uh, nasty to happen before we actually go, oh wow, we really need to get secure in this type of way. So, what's kind of the the specific idea for you know politicians or bureaucrats here? Is like fund more people to research how to address this? Um, uh, yeah, is- so I mean, like, um, so uh, IARPA and the and in uh, the U.S. has uh, thought through different uh, kind of, again, like these kind of like uh, ambitious projects to think through about how you could do DNA screening, uh, d- DNA screening better. I think there's there's still traction that we we need to make to be able to actually improve these methods from like a from a actual uh, research point of view. Um, I do think that there just needs to be more interest in this as well as well as buy-in from private private industry. Like you, you need to get DNA synthesis companies on on board with these these mechanisms and, and for them to not see it as a as a, just a uh, pain in the as, yeah, pretty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, because I mean, uh, it, 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 it is for them and it takes time and it, it requires, I mean, you know, if you get false positives, you know, you have to have a human reader on this and they're dealing with a lot of mail orders every day. There's a, there's a lot of DNA being made. Um, but um, how hard is it? Oh, well, it just seems like they got the sequence, compare it to like a database, see if it matches a bunch of dangerous things. Maybe, maybe I'm just completely naive about how hard this is, but it's getting done by computers, I guess. So, but then you need someone with bioinformatics to, knowledge to be able to then, if you know, it interpret comes up, it. Yeah, interpret it. Uh, you need to contact the the um, the you know the person ordering the DNA to go. What are you doing? Um, you need some mechanism in place for if you want to go inform authorities. Um, uh, and and DNA company uh, DNA synthesis companies, you know, want like a one day turnaround. You know, uh, maybe maybe when you have enough you know yeah it's amazing the 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 uh the uh cost of dna synthesis uh has has gone down ex- exponentially it's it's a phenomenal to look at the graphs of 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 how 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 much this has been accelerated which which is a which is a which is an amazing thing for science i mean i mean there's there's areas of biotechnology at the moment that uh, are accelerating faster than moore's law and so like this this field is just rapidly glowing and i i am net very excited about scientific developments. However, I think when it comes to thinking through nefarious actors and malicious ways of doing things, um, we really need to get on top of this and we need to get on top of it soon. Yeah. Okay. So I know that IAPA was looking into this whole bunch. That was mm-hmm. a, bunch, a couple of years ago. So And still ongoing projects. As it's well an ongoing too. project. Yeah. Okay. So it hasn't died. Um, but I guess we would like more people to be looking into it and mm-hmm. I guess trying to run with some of the ideas, just making sure that this this area of research and policy design doesn't uh, doesn't peter out. Yes, yeah, yeah. and then getting buy-in from, from, yeah, from companies, the companies them, yeah, themselves, yeah. I'm, kind of, I'm a little bit surprised that the companies don't see this as a big potential threat to their business. I mean, if they have some disaster where someone does request a patent, like it, it, could, it could ruin them, right? Uh, it seems, I, I don't know, maybe I don't understand their business uh, or perhaps <laughs> I have lots of time to think about these things that have never <laughs> happened before. Whereas if you're actually running a DNA synthesis business, you have a lot of things to think about that aren't this. I, I, I can't speak exactly to their incentive structure, but I'd imagine that's why they're having any buy-in at all and why why they're voluntarily uh, you know, um, agreeing with international consortiums. But um, um, I do also think that they're competing with international companies where uh, both um, you know, what, what they have is an advantage is for example their screening and also a quality as well too is another is another uh, buy-in but um but time frame for turnaround as well too so if they um if they can screen in and they can cut corners in any way especially when the cost per base pair is extremely low um you know uh it's really hard to to really want to get the most up-to-date screening methodologies and have a whole full-time person or more on staff to 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 kind of uh, look at all the red flags and you know. Yeah. So I guess the economist in me says, well, 
in that case, we need to say that these companies overseas that aren't following these regulations, they can't import things into your country until they follow the rules. Um, I mean, I think the in part the EU is designed, for example, to uh, allow you to have regulations that increase costs for your companies, but are but are good uh, for the country without facing unreasonable competition from uh, other groups that don't that aren't following those uh, regulations that are good for the whole world uh, in neighboring countries. Uh, so, for example, the US could say. Uh, you know, this DNA synthesis companies in China, they can't import, you can't import stuff from them until they follow these screening procedures that, that meet our uh, requirements. And then all of the country, all of the companies in the US have to follow these rules, uh, which means that they're not at a competitive disadvantage against other companies if they, if they do it. I mean, there's a whole bunch of implementation problems here, but I guess in principle, no. that seems like it could work. No, 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 that makes, yeah. that makes sense to me. Um, and unfortunately, I feel like this would have been easier to do about 10 years ago when these companies were really just taking off. Now the, the sheer scale and size will make it very hard to get these through but i think ultimately that is what we're going to need there, there needs to be there needs to be regulation and governments on that scale there needs to be a way to implement it as well and to inc- uh, control import as well too is another way that you can do this um i guess then you get leakage of someone who really wants to do something bad just leaves the country and goes to another country where they don't following the rules and well, gets that, it that's another concern so, is that is that if you actually want to if you actually want to do something it's very um, hard to get to 100 percent Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but I think you can reduce a lot of the risks this way. And I do think it's a, it's an, it's an obvious area that we can begin, we can begin to tackle. Um, All right. What's next? (laughs) All right. So um, that leads into thinking about dual use research oversight as well, too. So um, dual use research of concern, which many of your listeners might be familiar with, uh, is is research uh, uh, that can be used for both uh, good uh, uh, has good applications, but also can be used for nefarious purposes. And so um, there's been uh, various uh, prominent examples of dual-use research, uh, especially in the last 10 years or so. For example, um, research on um, uh, highly pathogenic avian influenza, where um, where uh, two labs, actually, um, one in the Netherlands and one in the U.S., um, uh, purposely modified avian influenza to become human-to-human transmissible. Um, uh, avian influenza is, uh, has a high mortality rate, how much higher than your usual flu, um, but it um, isn't readily able to be caught person to person. Um, most most people who get it are working in intensive agriculture or with wild bird populations. Uh, but they were able to modify um, modify the virus so that they could uh, it could be airborne transmissible between um, between uh, a ferret model, which is what we we use for influenza. It's a very similar uh, respiratory system model for influenza, uh, comparable to humans. Um, so this type of research is uh, dual use in the sense that we can understand things like how does how would a uh, uh, a very dangerous virus become uh, transmissible between humans. Uh, at the same time, publishing that and publishing how that uh, how that those mutations happen and 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 what what modifications need to be made to be able to make it that way uh, is extremely concerning from a point of view of someone taking that knowledge and information and then perhaps using it to 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 create a, a biological agent that could cause a lot of harm. Uh, this type of research is very difficult. To, to regulate and govern, uh, and it uh, it's not only just difficult to regulate and govern, but um, um, uh, like my colleague Greg Lewis has written on this before about uh, unilateralist action of the fact that even if 99 out of 100 researchers decide I'm not going to modify flu viruses to make them more transmissible, uh, all you need is one to do it and then publish it, and then that information is out in the world. So there's an information there, there's a there's a there's a bias towards information availability. 
these are really difficult problems and they're not, they're not easy to solve, but um, uh, we need people to be thinking about this. We need better oversight of, of research at every phase of the research cycle. So thinking through when, when grants are made about dangerous research, thinking through experiments that might be churning up dangerous results, and then publication phase where, where maybe, maybe the risks outweigh the benefits in terms of getting certain information out into the world. Um, and so uh, no country, in my opinion, is doing this very well yet. Um, and there's a lot of gains to be made if we if we are able to do this better. Are there any other uh, kind of cutting edge cases of uh, of dual use research uh, where, where it seems dangerous or controversial? Um, yeah, no. So there's 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 um, there's quite a few examples like uh, like horsepox in 2018. Um, uh, was was an example of two Canadian researchers taking a extinct pox virus that's a cousin of smallpox, um, and they were uh, able to um, to uh, from from uh, strands of of, of DNA uh, reconstructed in the laboratory for for less than a hundred thousand dollars and um, uh, and cause it cause it to infect um, to infect cells. Um, horsepox doesn't. In- they were doing this as like a proof of concept. They were doing they were doing this as a proof of concept because pox virus so so uh, pox viruses are known to be quite difficult to 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 uh, construct from scratch. They're they're uh, very large. There are over one hundred fifty thousand base pairs. So um, and, and globular in structure. There's a few reasons why they're they're a bit difficult to actually think that you could go from just genetic sequence to a live virus. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, community. Um, uh, kind of prohibition on doing this type of research because we'd be worried about um, something like smallpox being being made from scratch, which uh, which you know genetic information is available. Um, so um, uh, they were doing this. Uh, their reasons that they said were so that uh, that we could start making new smallpox vaccines. Uh, however, there was a lot of pushback going that you know publishing the methods by which you can make pox viruses from genetic sequences. Um, is is a bit risky to have out in the open literature it sounds bad uh (laughs) okay and they went ahead and did this without getting i guess lots of buy-in from other people convincing them that it was good so correct they tried and they tried to publish in a few different um few different papers like science rejected them and a few others did eventually plaus one um uh uh, said yes and published their paper okay yeah well i suppose they just test whether it's a sound paper oh they don't they Plus one is like designed to not have lots of editorial standards, right? Yeah, yeah which is sense. probably yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, um, it was interesting though when um, when when one of the journals rejected them. One their actual reasoning that they that they posted was that um, uh, we um, we are unable to publish your paper because we wouldn't be able to deal with the administrative burden of publishing something so contra- controversial. So it wasn't that it was dangerous to the world. It's just we didn't the, the we, paperwork involved. <laughs> In the same way, we don't want to deal with what the the influenza research, for example, had to deal with, which is was a big backlash and against um, against science about about um, publishing something that could be dual use. So when it was published, I guess many scientists were were not keen on this, or many of their there was a big colleagues? pushback. So in like plus biology, there's a there's a really good um, back and forth. Um, um, uh, both from the from the original authors of the of the paper, as well as from people like Tom Inglesby at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security and uh, Kevin Asphalt and and others who uh, who um, really laid out why exactly this type of research really shouldn't be in the open literature and why we need different standards for uh, for publication. 
Sounds fun. I'll, uh, I'll look that up and we'll stick a link to it in the, in, in the, in the blog post with the show. So the suggestion here is kind of more, more research on how to solve this. I guess one thing I worry is maybe these problems are just super intractable and we're always, always going to be like, well, we need more research because we haven't really got a great policy idea here. Uh, and but we'll come back in ten years, and it will still be just as hard and just oh, as no, messed up. I, I don't know if we need more research. I think <laughs> okay. we need more oversight. More, and, okay, okay yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. you're actually at the point of we're not. We don't just need to think about this more. We need to put in place better pr- processes. I, I think in the same way that we have ethics committees for uh, you know experiments on animals and humans. You know that we can think through. Uh, you know uh, having people who are biosecurity minded actually. Uh, you know you won't capture a hundred percent, but um, I think having people that actually think through. The risks of having certain information out in the open literature uh, could be could be a good way to actually think through about how we actually uh, disincentivize this type of uh, this type of, uh, of um, dual use research from being published. Okay, so this is kind of a new oversight panel of dangerous research areas where rather than consider the risks to. I guess the people in the lab or yeah, the animals that you're experimenting on, the people you're giving the drug to, it considers the risk of the whole world of doing this work uh, or of publishing it, yeah. uh, which I guess currently doesn't exist or only exists in a very ad hoc fashion. Yeah, most most, uh, most review panels don't consider these these types of biosecurity concerns. Uh, talking with editors of journals, they're also unsure. It's it's very unclear where the responsibility lies. Is it with the editor of a journal to 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 sit down and decide on what what uh, dual use should be published or not published, or what what it what risks versus cons? And obviously, people are biased. You know, as a as a researcher, you you want your research published. You might um, you might have different incentives. Uh, uh, at the moment, there 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 isn't a very good. Uh, uh, committee for this. There's also not a very good committee in in, in, a, in a different respect, which um, is something that um, a paper by Mark Lipsitch goes through, which is um, risk to non-participants. So 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 uh, you think especially for contagious diseases, we we at the moment uh, are have been qu- become quite good at realizing uh, how do we how do we preconceptualize potential risks to participants in a research study. We're not very good at conceptualizing the risks to the general population or public and thinking through, do we actually have any uh, duty of care towards non-participants in research studies? It seems even more because they're not consenting. It's actually, yeah, well, it's almost well, yeah, worse. No, yeah. yeah, and so so there's a good argument to say that like uh, not only should we care, but we we, we actually have a, a duty to to uh, you know they, they 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 didn't consent to this the, research. The completely being done. innocent third parties. Yeah. yeah. So so if I'm doing research modifying uh, dangerous pathogens um, and it's a non-zero risk to uh, to um, the neighboring t- person in the neighboring town uh, because they could be affected by if a, if an outbreak occurred. Uh, uh, how do I even start thinking through it? How do I do a risk assessment that takes them into account? Um, I do think that this is hard, but I, I, I think that's not a reason not to do it. To, yeah. yeah, doing nothing is a choice and it's a choice to just like not consider the risk at all or to consider in a very yeah, uh, ad hoc and inconsistent way. Yeah. And I guess allow people to shop around for whatever the journal doesn't, doesn't, doesn't care. <laughs> well, that's, that so, seems to be what happens. And so this unilateralist action is really, is, it's quite scary. It's always going to yeah. be uh, biased towards information. Leave. Yeah. We, we should say some of this dangerous research should happen because even though it's dangerous, it might, there's a high enough probability that it will produce some really useful information or lead to a breakthrough that will uh, you know, reduce risk even more on the other side. So you can have something that's very risky, but is risk reducing on net uh, in expectation. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's why, I mean, the, the people forget that sometimes dual use research is dual because it's good as well too. It's not just it's not just waking weapons or something like this. Um, um, but you're right. Actually, working out the the net sign of, of of a lot of this research can be really difficult. And I I, I think though uh, uh, you can get at least a general sense for most research to some degree. 
if you really can't tell the sign, if you're just super unconfident about it, then it doesn't seem like it's probably a top priority project, right? If, you, if you're just unsure whether this is good or bad for the world, <laughs> I don't know, why don't you find something that's good, <laughs> that you're confident is good? Maybe, but I suppose you'd be like, well, it's a 55-45 scenario, but the 55 would be so valuable. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but it's hard. I mean, like, you, yeah. can, you can imagine, like... People disagree. Uh, is there anything more to say on this? Any uh, uh, unintended consequences we've got to avoid, or something specific that policymakers should be should be doing? Is there, is there any individuals we should be funding? Who who, who should we send money to? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think I think we need to to. I mean, as much as um, it's it's a headache to to get your funding application in and your ethics committees approved and all this type of stuff, um, I do think uh, really having some biosecurity minded people uh, involved in each stage of the research cycle uh, is is necessary, and there's there's just really not many people that are thinking in the biosecurity mindset for these types of things. So, okay, uh, what, what number are we up to now? I've lost count. We're number eleven next. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, yeah okay. what's what's number eleven? Uh, number eleven is uh, doing pandemic tabletop exercises, and this okay. is something um, uh, I've become quite excited about uh, over the last uh, two years. Um, uh, they um, it kind of comes back down to um, pandemic plans as well, too, but. Um, I think in terms of both government buy-in to to start realizing the extent that some of these risks could pose, as well as thinking through actually uh, until you actually trial a system where your actual breaking points are and where your gaps are in your knowledge and and your response capabilities, it's only when you start exercising these things that do these really things that these come out. So some of the the best exercises I've seen have come out of um, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Um, uh, two years ago, they did Cladex. Um, which was a um, which was a deliberate release scenario, and they also did um, a uh, event two hundred one uh, named because uh, on average the the global health community uh, deals with two hundred uh, outbreaks per year. So the event two hundred one, the name was the idea that what what if the what if there is uh, an extra one that that was that was extremely bad and caused a pandemic, um, um, and they were able to go through uh, especially a lot of the economic effects. Um, in that exercise, I was also involved in Australia in a smallpox release exercise in the Pacific, uh, uh, like a, a pretend scenario, of course. Um, uh, but thinking through about if we had smallpox come back again, like do, what are the vaccine pipelines for that? Uh, what like uh, what what is uh, the world prepared for for a disease that we know quite a bit about, but um, that we haven't seen in in in, in more than forty years? Um, and I think these types of scenarios really uh, really showcase in a very uh, bringing people step by step through the way of a plausible scenario to a uh, outcome that they really don't want to be in, uh, realizing I need to make policy changes on on how I'm approaching pandemic planning. Do we have any evidence for how well table talk exercises tend to match reality when things play out? Because you imagine there's a whole lot of stuff. Well, it's like you're playing a board game. It's at a high level of, of abstraction. And so there's all kinds of details that are probably getting missed. I suppose at least you manage to notice the things that are wrong at that level of abstraction that you're operating at. Uh, you're like, oh, there's, there's this piece of our whole like plan that's missing. Yeah, no, I agree. It's actually quite unclear. And I've looked into this for, uh, especially for like a, um, like a state or like local level um, uh, exercises about how much that actually gets translated into policy. It seems very variable about how much actually changes uh, in terms of planning. It's also very hard unless you get buy-in from funding. I mean, a lot of uh, when I worked in communicable disease control in um, in, in Melbourne, um, uh, you know, the, there there was a lot of interest in pandemic planning. We had, we had you know, a, a person who was on pandemic flu uh, and, and and others. But because you're you're uh, you're a public health department that's dealing with limited resources and you're dealing with uh, you know 
communicable disease control every day in and day out, it's actually very hard to then uh, actually plan for larger scale things. So unless you get a lot of resources invested from higher levels up and going, this this is something that needs uh, this needs uh, priority because um, yes, it's less likely than your day to day communicable disease cases, but it could be much worse. Um, it's it's very hard. So so I think that I think the answer is it's quite variable. Uh, but I get uh, I get a sense at least from the people that attend these exercises that the that the the at least the buy-in in the moment is is quite a bit stronger than just talking at people's stats or 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 something like this. Okay, so it's a way of both carving out time to think about this thing because it's like, well, we're doing this exercise, so that's a concrete thing that you got to take some time away from your normal job to do. Uh, and then I guess it forces people to think like in a more near mode where you're like playing out this scenario and thinking, well, what would we actually do here um, rather than just thinking in some vague sense that they've got it handled. Um, and then uh, I suppose people can go back and be like, well, these are the things that went wrong in the tabletop exercise, so here's the things that we could improve. But maybe that it could go wrong. It could be that the, the simulation or the, the tabletop exercise draws the wrong conclusions about what are the biggest weaknesses because it's this, it's, it's not very accurately modeled, say, mm-hmm. uh, or that you don't get follow through. Uh, yeah, it's usually pre-planned. Most, I mean, the, the scenario is not like, a, it's not like a, play your own adventure type thing well i mean i mean usually they're pre-planned in terms of the outcome and whatnot and you get updates and and, and whatnot and participants can... so there's nowhere to win where you're like oh we did these things oh i suppose the, the idea as well they're going to be limited by what the capacities are that are in place at the moment and so this is what would actually happen uh in this case yeah, yeah. given the plan that we currently have yeah. but but you'll you i i've been very surprised at uh, some of them I've attended with, especially senior people in government who, um, who, for example, uh, 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 you know, I don't say this derogatorily, but like uh, they, they don't realize things like, uh, you mean what? What do you mean we don't have a vaccine in a few weeks? We can't just do that type of thing. And like the, even just realizations like this of going like, what are the actual feasible timelines for things uh, on the ground today? Um, I think uh, that type of pe- pe- people have very different preconceptions about what actual health system response can look like, and um, realizing realizing that the timeframes for things are very different than what their preconceptions were. I think. In itself, I mean, I can't see how that doesn't plant seeds. Yeah. Uh, you know? so, so is this mostly bringing in people who really don't know a ton about this scenario, who are like non-experts in the area, and then getting them to understand like how things will actually work, uh, broadly speaking? It, I, I've seen a mix. Usually you have experts in the area mixed with decision makers who are in positions that would actually be either the ones dealing with the response, who would be be leaders in the response and various aspects of the response, um, or, or, or formally were in those types of positions. And so, um, which I think is quite useful because um, those are the people that you really really want to be understanding the nuances of the situation I think I think any system that's untried will always have this problem of you'll have this general sense of uh, oh I think we'll do something in this scenario and sure sure it will work out and only when you start examining in detail and just going through an exercise scenario exercise realizing oh, this is going to involve oh. <laughs> 10,000 people who are you don't have yeah, yeah. And then, and then, what happens if if any of us gets sick as well? Too. This is the other. I mean, there's 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 nuances to infectious diseases that really, really are different than any other disaster. Yeah. Are there any uh, like, yeah other pros or cons of uh, of this this idea that you want to flag? Uh, okay. So well, table talk exercises. I mean, there's um uh you, you can mislead if you you know yeah. if you over <laughs> design if you, it badly yeah. design it badly uh or 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 uh, unnecessarily scare I, I guess. Uh, there's also, um, and I, I feel very sorry for the John Hopkins Center for Health Security at the moment of they've, um, they, their latest exercise, the event 2011 involved a coronavirus, um, and they've received a lot of backlash in this current outbreak of, of people saying like, oh, they, they planned this one and all this, all this, 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 uh, terrible things that, uh, they've unfortunately received a lot of, um, 
uh, negative press online, which is uh, extremely unfair that they that they just happened to choose something that 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 was likely to be cause an outbreak. And um, yeah, maybe they need to come up with a fake name next time. So it's, I know whenever I'm planning to release a, a plague to kill millions of people, I always do a tabletop exercise and post it on YouTube first. It's uh, <laughs> just it's just common sense, really. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, no, I feel, just jokes aside. Yeah, no, I feel really bad for them. It's. It's there are just terrible like a lot of people out they're there. extremely uh, extremely good at what they do and, and they're almost uh, they're almost getting punished for how how good they are yeah they were so good that they picked it up like exactly they, they, close, they surprisingly up. closely to yeah. how it would be and, and it makes sense that we're seeing a coronavirus and anyway so there, there's backlash that you can get in these types of ways that I do think again this comes this, this is more of a information um, misinformation uh, control and 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 being very clear that pandemic exercises, tabletop exercises are obviously fictional and and whatnot which they, which they made very clear but uh but um you know maybe not every can... random person on twitter knows that mm-hmm. um okay uh is this expensive to do or is it hard to get buy-in from people to come along uh it can be and it depends on the you know the the uh, participants that you want want in um and how uh public you want to have it uh it doesn't have to be um, I've been involved in some where you had actual situation rooms and it took, you know, all day. Uh, those are quite fun. And, and actually, <laughs> uh, I do think you get a lot of um, you do get a lot of bang for your buck when you when you actually uh, are having people having to take on the roles that they'd have to be taking on. Uh, uh, but this yes, does sound quite do. fun. I suppose I was never into Dungeons and Dragons or anything like that. But this time, <laughs> it's like a better yeah. version. Yeah, no, it's um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's 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 interesting, and yeah, like I said, it's um, it's very interesting to see the preconceptions people have about vaccine timelines and other such things. I see. Um, um, but um, yeah, so it, it it doesn't have to be that expensive, but a lot of the times people do put production value into these types of things. Um, are there any groups in particular where you know someone in the audience might be listening from some government agency where you'd be particularly keen for them to go and do it? Uh, I'd I'd be very excited for for most national governments to be doing this on a regular basis um, and to think through a large range of scenarios, not just doing pandemic flu, uh, but thinking through things like what what would be different if you had a deliberate biological event? What would be different if uh, if the 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 type of virus or, or bacteria that was spreading uh, was was quite a bit different than things like influenza. Uh, what happens if uh, we need to support other countries or there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of problems with misinformation. There's a lot of different scenarios that can happen with with uh, biological events, and so I think they're worth worth thinking through. Uh, other others that I think could be thinking through this quite a bit are um, are essential services, so uh, like electricity companies and other such such things where you really you need a certain functioning level of staff to be able to keep keep things running and it, it's uh uh it's amazing how when you when you start looking into this about how important it is to to um, have kind of a not just whole of government response which is talked about in this way in many circles but also um kind of the public private partnerships where you'd uh you'd need things like your electricity companies and others to to be able to keep services going in a pandemic scenario yeah uh, I've, I've been well I suppose I was thinking, should I store, uh, should anyone be storing water uh, for this situation? It seems mm-hmm. like there's no way this is going to interfere with the water supply. <laughs> I mean, perhaps if you're in a place where the water supply is incredibly insecure to begin with, like you're using desal plants, then it's a bit more uh, insecure. But yeah, how many people... Uh, Singapore, Singapore is unfortunately very insecure uh, yeah. when it comes to water. Right. Um, yeah. How bad do things have to get before we worry about whether the water and the electricity and the gas is going to keep flowing? Uh, do, do, do we have any sense of that yet? Or is that one of the many questions that we should be trying to figure out? Uh, it's it's hard to know, but it's uh it, like people have done some estimates about worker absenteeism slash uh, you know if they're absent because they're either at home taking care of sick loved ones they themselves are sick or are they they're too scared to go into work slash 
if uh, if public transport or such things were affected, uh, what are actually the bare minimum number of people that you need to keep things uh, like electricity or water plants or, or uh, waste collection um, going, um, or hospital services, which would obviously be a mainstay um, in a, such an event. Um, and uh, there are quite a few people that you that you need. And 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 so it's, the, the electrical grid is kind of a daily high wire act. Or there's a lot of things that that can go wrong with it. And it's yeah. impressive how much redundancy we have to try to keep it going. But yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, one of the more more things I've looked at before is um, things like uh, uh, cremation rates and other such things, which uh, you know you'd, you'd have to also be thinking in these kind of this more. Well, how do you dispose of how, bodies how, that would be infectious? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so um, and thinking through that, and you need people to be able to be helping in this. And um, I, I think um, there's a lot more community resilience than people realize uh, when when it comes to wide widespread events. Because um, people will rise to the occasion, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, and and there's uh you know um you know uh p- people have worried before about healthcare worker absenteeism and whatnot. I mean, being a healthcare worker is you know putting yourself at risk because you're in you're in a po- you're putting yourself into a scenario where it's um you know higher higher concentration of of the unwell. But um but uh, it's amazing what you see in terms of the resilience of communities to actually uh, power through and and be able to keep coming into work and 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 realizing the the role that they're playing in keeping in keeping the entire response going. Um and I think um. I I think there needs to be more uh, uh, kind of research done to make sure that that those types of things can. Uh, what what are the, the the minimum points and what are what what are the ways that we can keep that going for as long as possible, especially when you're thinking through larger scale events. Nice. All right. Uh, number twelve. Yeah. Okay. So the end. And so. Um, uh, number twelve is a kind of wrap up. One of we need to coordinate all this. <laughs> so, so uh, coordination of all this, uh, uh, especially because we've talked through a lot of different aspects of this, and none of this. Uh, I, well, some some of this may maybe just a standalone type of uh, uh, y- you know uh, uh, t- things that 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 a government would take on, or or uh, you know an industry would take on, for example, for the platform technologies or or whatnot. But I do think there's something to be worthwhile said about uh, about a coordination role for 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 different agencies. And this is something we've been thinking about from the from the the UK perspective is is thinking through uh, having things like a um, biosecurity leadership council. So um, at the moment we have a synthetic biology leadership council in the UK, um, and they they work to to help get evidence based policy into the UK government and coordinate things within the synthetic biology community and as well as in the policy scene. You could imagine that you could uh, have a lot of biosecurity initiatives kind of undertaken the same way if you had a kind of convening body that kind of coordinated people opposed to the kind of uh, very uh, uh, spread out community that you have at the moment. Um, the other is thinking through having a uh, research and development center where you'd have this type of uh, like biodefense of the 21st century being undertaken, um, as well as kind of a more formalized way in which you in which you um, link up security and biological communities. So there's there's some roles in the U.S., for example, that really uh, that that link between, uh, for example, like the FBI and the in the uh, biohacker slash. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, biological industries communities and is able to kind of keep this breadth of what is actually going on in, in developments in the space as well as uh, kind of more risks and security concerns as well too. Okay, so this is kind of creating new people who are responsible for making these and other good ideas happen. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there a reason that there aren't people who are already responsible for this? I guess it's just cost money. Uh, there's a lot of things to worry about in the world. So this just hasn't reached the top of the list. 
Yeah, that's, that's correct. I mean, like one thing, I mean, like in the UK, so the, there was a biological uh, security strategy released in 2018. And one of the things it called for was uh, uh, someone to have oversight over dual use research of concern. Um, but no one, no one's been assigned that as a task. So there's not a single person that's really actually responsible to make sure that in the UK, uh, there's oversight of dual use research of concern. So I think actually formalizing this into a single person or into a single, uh, into a single body is, a, um, uh, in a, in a government structure or, 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 or council or, or other such thing is, is a good way to actually make sure that you have coordination and action in the space. Uh, other, otherwise it just gets lost in the, in the ether as it were. Yeah. Uh, are there any arguments against doing this, or uh, any reasons why it wouldn't be a hot show, such a high uh, I priority? Mean, I guess I guess sometimes you know, like like you know, there's there's councils that get formed that then end up you know, it's like a it's like a it's like a cog that's off its gear and like you yeah. know it turns and it doesn't really actually <laughs> actually do anything in the real world. I mean, like yeah. uh, so I mean, there's there's a lot of failure modes to 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 such things happen, taking place. I think though, if there's buy-in and you have the people who are forming such bodies actually want to make change in this space. Um, it seems to be the only way that you actually get proper coordination. Um, it also, there's just not much understanding of biosecurity in the, in the wider world. Uh, uh, um, if you, if you work in, if you work in an academic lab in, in a university, uh, you probably know quite a bit about biosafety because you've had to do a lot of biosafety courses. You probably haven't really thought through about like security concerns of like, what if a bunch of reagents went missing or what if, um, you know, what, what if someone was ordering a bunch of DNA or, 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 uh, or thinking through, um, what if I publish this and someone used the research I was doing with all the good purposes in the world, but I, I did research that could enable someone to cause harm. This is not this type of thing. And so having, having someone uh, or a group that's able to kind of govern and oversee this kind of wider picture, I think is really the main way that you get traction in these spaces. All right. Yeah. Do you want to do any prioritization out of this twelve? Is there any one that you're particularly slacked about? That um, any that are more droppable? Or I mean, all of like a lot. A lot of what we've talked about is very ambitious, um, yeah. and, and and I'm okay with that. I think I think it's I, I think um, you know if you're working with a Lego set um, and you really actually need to start thinking about different building materials. I mean, at some point you need to just uh, you just need a different building material. And I think I think we need a, a very different approach to how we're doing. Uh, how we're doing um, proper biosecurity uh, going forward, especially for the risks that are possible this century. Um, and so uh, if I, if, you know, I mean, I mean, one that I've been most excited about uh, recently is, is, is uh, in that, in that I think is on the kind of closest time horizon would be diagnostic testing um, and, and, and metagenomic approaches and doing uh, kind of more ubiquitous metagenomic sequencing. So that covers your both biosurveillance side of things as well as uh, testing in an outbreak and doing that kind of early outbreak um, response. Um, but in general, I mean, from like a policy standpoint, I think um, I think having a more generic pandemic plan and kind of thinking through a bunch of different permutations could really, uh, really get a lot of uh, traction on uh, potential scenarios that we might be faced with. Uh, how optimistic are you that uh, some of these ideas might uh, might get up in the next couple of months, or at least in at least in some countries, as people are uh, <laughs> the current pandemic focuses the mind? I I think um, people are rightfully quite concerned when they think about this pandemic and they think about um, you know the that the, the security that you might you think you have from a from a modern day health system really isn't uh, able to uh, deal with these these types of scenarios. Um, so I think. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of uh, interest in actually having solutions in these areas. I uh, whether or not that interest will be translated into things like 
like knee-jerk travel bans or whether they'll be uh, translated into things like uh, a, a really different, fundamentally different approach to how we do vaccines and diagnostics. Um, I, I remain cautiously optimistic. I mean, CEPI, CEPI's announced that, they, that they're that they going for it. They've, they've put the green light to four, four places to try to develop vaccines in, in 16 weeks, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, if they could prove that, then it's it, it might give people hope that you know that timeline can just be reduced and reduced um um i do think i do think that these problems look big to people when they look at them but i, I think that's a time to put your head down and not your hands in the air yeah all right so i guess getting into this has been a pretty big career shift from just being a, a normal doctor yeah did you ever just practice uh medicine in a in a hospital uh, without any particular focus on this kind of thing uh, yeah, for I did so I did clinical for five years, um, and then I then communicable disease for for just under a year. Um, yeah, are you glad you you shifted? Uh, it, it, it sounds like it sounds like eighty thousand hours a might have been kind of actually responsible for you ending up doing this. Uh, so uh, how, how should we feel about that? Are, are, you, are you happier in your life? Or? Um, yeah, no, I massively credit uh, eighty thousand hours uh, for 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 being being easily Googleable when I when I, when I needed it, um, and. Uh, very much so. I, I was I was searching for a while, uh, for more than a year, trying to find what specialty fit my my interests. Uh, before realizing, like my, I, I loved clinical medicine. I I, I really did love it, but I, it also felt very limited, and uh, I was not able to articulate that until reading some articles on eighty thousand hours about. Um, oh, this is why it's because it, it doing shift work uh, in a hospital always means that you're you're you, you, no matter how efficient you are and how how good you are at applying uh, clinical guidelines, you're just seeing one patient at a time. And so so um, uh, I'm really glad to have shifted. Uh, I feel like uh, uh, not only not only have I moved into an area where where uh, uh, you can make a, a big difference, I actually feel uh, really excited about putting a career into uh, actually protecting against these types of risks because um, it, it 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 worries me that we're that we really are not prepared for for large scale uh, pandemic events and uh, what that could mean what that could mean for people alive today what that could mean for for our long term future and uh, I, I really hope that I can 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 contribute to the space in some positive type of way. This stuff seems really fun. I uh, I'm kind of jealous. Well, it's like this, there's so many margins to push on, like so many concrete things to think about. Uh, so many, I guess, places that are working on it, things that can be funded. It seems kind of exciting. Uh, is that is that impression right? So it's also slightly terrifying, perhaps. But <laughs> yeah, no, I I, I go from uh, being a bit worried <laughs> and uh, and uh, f- feeling that worry to 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 actually feeling quite excited. And uh, and and you're right. I do think that as much as some some of these ideas are very much. Uh, uh, there'd have to be a lot of buy-in and investment. I, I don't think there, there's no physical reason why they're not why they're not tractable. And and with uh, with uh, the the rate of de- of uh, technological development that we've had, I, I I think at least some of these can be ticked off in the next in the next few decades. And that that really excites me. Um, and and I get really <laughs> I know it sounds silly, but I, I get I get quite excited by the idea of getting uh, getting to the end of my career. And if someone was like, oh, uh, you know, you're a naysayer that none of these events ever happened, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be so happy because it it meant that we actually got got good at the first time as a species to actually think through how are we actually going to be proactive against these things and stop them three steps up the line versus having to to deal with a scenario uh, that's. Uh, you know that that that's 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 uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want any <laughs> conscious being to have to to go through, which is which is which is what I'd imagine a, a large scale pandemic uh, w- would end up being like. 
All right. Well, fantastic. Uh, thanks for going through so many different ideas and, uh, and dealing with all of my stupid potential objections to them. Uh, we'll be talking with your colleague, uh, Greg Lewis, I think in a couple of weeks, uh, the, the guy who's uh, overwhelmingly responsible for writing up, yeah, this uh, new new problem profile on, on pandemic preparedness. Yeah, yeah. He's been working hard on it. And I'm looking forward to people being able to, to read it on, on ADK. Um, and, um, and yeah, and so, um, and I, uh, as, as this, uh, interview showed, I was, I've been quite involved with, um, thinking through some UK policy ideas and, um, uh, and, and working with some people who are, who are also working in UK policy. So if any of your listeners are interested in, um, in, in helping out in this area, you're thinking about contributing, uh, f- feel free to get in touch with me, um, and, and I can get you in touch. And so, um, uh, I, I do think there's a lot of, uh, areas that, that, that can, um, have action at the moment and that's exciting. Yeah, likewise. Uh, if you if you have any responses to this, uh, Rob at eighty thousand hours.org. I'd, I'd be very interested to hear if you have uh, maybe uh, so, someone actually sent through a bunch of uh, policy ideas when I when I posted this on the Effective Autism Forum. Uh, There's there one that I think you thought was interesting, which was if we're going to run out of uh, was it uh, protective personal equipment uh, like masks? Personal protective equipment, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, like masks and. Uh, couldn't we f- find some way to heat them up enough to uh, deactivate viruses that, that, that are on them? Which is, uh, I'd, I'd never heard that idea before. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, so we autoclave a lot of equipment in hospitals and, uh, and other ways to sterilize them. But yeah, no, I mean, like, uh, this, I mean, uh, I, I get excited about PP. It's it's not as a it's not as a sexy uh, area as other areas like uh, designing new vaccines. But um, uh, you could actually save a lot of lives if you could if you could find new ways of of approaching things like gloves and masks, making them more effective, making them reusable in a reliable way. Uh, uh, and yeah, he, he, heating them up in the oven, I think would would need a little bit more um, uh, evidence <laughs> behind it uh, about how many viruses are killed, how many how many minutes you, you'd have to. You'd have to do that, but um, yeah, no, there's, 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 uh, there's lots of interesting work in this space. I think that could be quite positive for the future going forward. Yeah, if if, if NCOV reaches uh, London, where we're we're at at the moment, um, should uh, we consider like shutting down the tube or discouraging public gatherings to, to to avoid it spreading a lot, or is it maybe just it's it's going to end up you know going through a lot of people anyway and that just slows things down it doesn't really change the ultimate outcome yeah so i've thought about mass gatherings quite a bit before um you know we also have in japan the olympics coming up um so um i i don't want to give any any prescriptive advice here with regards to this but um it's uh it, it is true that social distancing including including things like avoiding uh places of mass gatherings um is a very useful way to slow transmission once transmission gets enough that that that, that actually becomes a, a a option that's uh that actually uh that actually makes sense um so um thinking through new ways about how we can um uh, go about our daily lives uh while that i don't think we're at that stage yet though and i uh, i really hope that london doesn't get to that stage either but uh, i do encourage your listeners to Kind of keep up to date, uh, not not uh, unnecessarily worry by any means, but uh, but but keep informed about about this outbreak because uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty. My guest today has been uh, Cassidy Nelson. Uh, thanks for coming on the Eighty Thousand Hours podcast at such short notice, Cassidy. Cheers. Thanks for having me, Rob. All right. I uh, hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, I'll let you know when our new written problem profile uh, on this topic is out, so you can go and you can go and read it and learn even more. If you'd like to chat to Cassidy or some of her various contacts about UK policy careers, uh, whether on bio or any other uh, long-termist focus areas, uh, you can contact her at cassidy.nelson at gtc.ox.ac.uk. But in the meantime, if you'd like to hear more about pandemics and what to do about them, uh, there's episode four, uh, Howie Lempel, on pandemics that kill hundreds of millions and how to stop them. 
Episode 12, uh, Dr. Beth Cameron, Works to Stop You Dying in a Pandemic, Here's What Keeps Her Up at Night. And episode 27, uh, Dr. Tom Inglesby, On Careers and Policies That Reduce Global Catastrophic Biological Risks. As I mentioned at the start, uh, there's a discussion about the excellent uh, Emerging Leaders in Biosecurity Fellowship, uh, which Cassidy is about to enter uh, in that episode 27. Uh, And then, of course, there's uh, Howie and my conversation uh, from February 3rd that's in your podcast feed. Uh, And if you want to follow uh, the latest developments on NCOV, we've got links to a lot of great resources in the blog post attached to that episode. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris and transcriptions are by Zachy Allhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.